Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, December 13, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Morning, Rev. Good morning. I have these birdies that have these voices that whisper things in my in my head. Even while I sleep, I have these birdies that, explains that whisper a lot. things in my head. Or <laughs> it's um, talent. Some birdie, I think, I didn't hear it clearly, but during my sleep last night, one of my lighter moments of sleep, I heard a birdie say today is going to be a good day for Gamecock football. I'll just okay. leave it there. Yeah, I'll okay. just leave it there. Oh, see, now you're just going to leave it there? You got me all interested. What? And the rocket's red glare. <laughs> Bombs bursting in air? Yeah, just leave it there. Okay. These birdies. I, 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 I didn't I hear you. clearly. I got you. I'm sleeping. Let me see. That's good. I, I think I get your. Okay. I, I get your. Not that many out there care. Hint. Because it's not football season any longer. Right. It's basketball right. season. Rockets, Red And the Gamecocks and Tigers have both gotten off to Clemson in particular. Uh, win the head-to-head battle. They're undefeated. The Gamecocks only losses to Clemson. Um, they're both, I think, in the what? What is what's the um, the power ratings or whatever it is? The um, the net ratings or the net rankings or anyway, it's uh, it's a silly formula. Why not have a committee to decide? <laughs> to decide? Sure, they got these formulas and um, and computer programs and and models and whatnot. But um, I mean, this is probably, I would imagine, in recent time, the best two basketball teams uh, these teams have had. And the fan base is still more interested in football recruiting than they are, um, you know, the basketball teams and the performances on the field. We obviously, uh, we as in Gamecocks and Gamecock fans, obviously have something to fix. So we're still, and we're still in the throes of football season. I mean, we're done for the season. We don't have any more games, obviously. But uh, but there's still some interest, and we're still in football season. I haven't gotten to the playoffs yet. So, something tells me, and I don't know. I mean, we, we talked yesterday a little bit about the return of common sense, maybe. You know, um, the Biden administration are in concert with the media and academia, and they're telling you that. I mean, I wrote something down this morning uh, for our conversation yesterday with Josh, and my one of my kids kind of sent me a text. I said, Josh is right. You know, it's, it's a struggle. I mean, it, it's a grind. I mean, you know, it's um, the American dream almost seems unattainable. But I, the Biden administration seems to be quoting a lot of economic indicators. And the only one that matters to the majority of Americans is affordability. How affordable is our economy? I mean, that, that's where we, um, w- when you go to your favorite restaurant and they say that'll be $17.24, you don't say, well, I mean, I'm not paying that. The economic indicators show that, you know, um, I mean, Biden's <laughs> economic indicators. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the Ivy League graduates running the Treasury yeah. and, and the Fed, I mean, they, you know, they're quoting these economic indicators. I'm only paying what the Biden administration's economic indicators say That's right. that I should say this inflation doesn't actually exist. Well, I mean, but remember the scene in trading places when the guy's trying to sell this Philip Patek or whatever watch. And he says, you know, $50. And he says that watch will keep time and, you know, under 300 meters of water and in six different time zones. And it's, it's, uh, it's stainless steel combined with gold and blah, blah, blah. That watches some of the neighborhood of three or $4,000. And the guy says it's $50 in Philadelphia. <laughs> Um, the economic indicators don't matter much to me. It's about affordability and people. So, so we, we went down that road yesterday and, and I'll parlay that into the conversation about NIL. Something tells me that the average college football fan don't like this. And it's not the kid getting money. 
but I, I don't think the I think the average college football fan, um, I would probably not be average. I would be an enthusiast. Um, even the enthusiast. Okay, I, I bumped into a good Clemson friend of mine again at the gym yesterday. One of my dear friends, huge Clemson guy, um, bleeds orange, all the good stuff, and he kind of he, he he makes a point to talk to me about it, and it's as if he needs therapy. Can you like this? Because I don't. I mean, do you like that? Because I don't. I, I don't. But it's not about with him. It's not about the kid getting money. Because he'll say very openly, I think the kid got screwed for a long time. I mean, I think the NCAA raked in millions and millions and millions of dollars. And the universities raked in millions and millions and millions of dollars. And the coaches and assistant coaches and athletics directors raked in millions and millions. I mean, the kid should have gotten something. But, but his problem is this. And, and this is where I think it goes to forget the economic indicators. Let's talk about affordability. Fairness, what feels fair. Sometimes, guys, the most the, the most shallow process can be the most telling. Um, I mean, economic indicators are a complicated way to understand the economy. Affordability is a very simple way, right? I mean, Josh says the economy is not very affordable. My kid um, kind of concurs with that. Man, it's hard. It's a grind. I'm not blowing money, Dad. I promise I'm not blowing money. I don't have any money to blow. You know, I put gas in my truck. I, I, I pay my bills. I, do, I don't have any money left over. I mean, it's different now than when it was when you were younger. So the NIL era of college football has ushered in the right for the kid to put himself on the market. And we've agreed that there has to be some place of equilibrium. The, the kid went from having no leverage in a multi-million dollar negotiation, which he was not allowed to be a part of, to having probably too much leverage. Transfer portal, free agency, um, no salary caps. The wild, wild west is where we are today. But here's what I think people are beginning to be a little bit like, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know about that. I think the kids should get money. How much, I don't know. We'll figure that out over time. But here's what's happened. Notre Dame poached Wake Forest quarterback last year. Notre Dame poached Duke's quarterback this year. It's a little bit like, let, let's say, Rev's a shepherd, and he's got all these sickly sheep. But he's got one good sheep, and I come along and take Rev's good sheep just because I can, just because I can. That's the sense I feel. Um, you know, the haves and the have-nots. Everybody, I mean, why, why did, who pulled for Apollo Creed in Rocky One? Not a damn soul. I mean, everybody pulled for Rocky. There's beauty in, in the, uh, the underdog with the comeback story and whatnot. And when I read the story yesterday about the quarterback at Duke, and he's a good one. I mean, he's a good one, but the kid at Wake Forest was a good one. It just looks to me like, okay, you've got all these sickly sheep. Uh, we, we don't want those kids that played at Wake. We don't want those kids that played at Duke. We don't believe they're good enough to play at Notre Dame. But we will take that good and healthy sheep. Yeah, we'll take him. Uh, you know, we, we've got a big checkbook here. We're the Catholic University of America. We can write big checks. we got a big fundraising base and whatnot. And I think fans are going like, ah, yuck. I don't, I don't like that. I mean, I don't like Notre Dame going to Wake Forest last year, taking their best sheep, coming to Duke this year, taking their their best sheep. Once again, I don't think they're mad at the kid. I really don't. I mean, they're, they're, some of the old guard, I mean, that, that liked having all the control, all the money, all the influence, yeah, they, they you know, they're like, well, I mean, it, it, you can't give these kids money. They don't have sense enough to spend it. You know, that money needs to, to come to us, and we can disperse the money because we're smart. We got these, these tacky blazers, and we've been in charge, you know, of all these <laughs> – of all the goings on in college football all these years, I think the, the the fan supports the players getting paid. How much? I don't even know that. And I, I've kind of lived it for a year or so. And one of these days, I'll tell the story 
of how I got so involved in uh in the, the NIL world. Rev knows the story. It's kind of crazy. Um, but anyway, one of these days I'll tell I'll tell that story. Um, but in the name of keeping things in confidence and not to allow the enemy and opposition to have the upper hand, we'll keep that amongst <laughs> friends here or amongst. Uh, no, no, you're our friends, but amongst the uh, the uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, the people that when I say this something, I know they won't go out and repeat it. Um, but but my, my buddy from Clemson is very interesting because he always wants to talk about it. And he said yesterday to me, you know what he said, Rev? Hmm. I watched the Army-Navy game because I wanted to watch college football again. There's not a kid on that field. You know what their NIL is? The contract with the U.S. government to serve this country. The, the honor and dignity and that goes along, you know, with, with with serving your nation. Now, do do some players from Army and Navy get drafted? Of course they do. Roger Stallback comes to mind. You know, played at the Naval Academy, went on to a an illustrious NFL career. But but it's just something about, and I think there are situations in the economy that remind me of the NIL world. There are all these economic indicators, and the media has tried to sell the American people on these economic indicators. Uh, Williams was talking about the price of gas. You know, and it's not 179, but it's not 399. I mean, it's getting better. Um, I think we hit a wall in some fashion about second quarter of 2024. We'll see how that works itself um, through the economy. But but the NIL, the, the economic indicators of the NIL, I think are fair. In other words, the kid didn't have any leverage. He's got far too much leverage. We'll get back to a place of equilibrium. And if I were emperor of college football, I would implement a, uh, a salary cap. I mean, I'd say to the teams, you've got three and a half, four million million to spend, whatever that number is. I mean, there, there's some arbitrary number out there. If you can't field a football team at $4 million, you know what else I'd do, Reb? Because I talked to a buddy of mine yesterday about that. And um, he said, yeah, but I mean, if the, if, the, if the salary cap, quote, unquote, was $4 million, the teams that had always paid under the table – I mean, they'll pay whatever they got to yeah, pay. Put a little icing I mean, on if, the cake. If Dave Baker's son is a five-star linebacker and, you know, um, the Gamecocks and Tigers agree that it, the, the market rate is $200,000 a year, you know, Alabama will give him 200000 to figure out a way to get him another hundred, you know, under the table. And, and I'll, I know how to fix that. You ready? In the process of creating legislation that allows the universities to pay the players, the collectives to pay the players, you, instead of to big boosters who do those sorts of things, instead of the NCAA knocking on your door, hey, we need to talk to you. Because if you're a wealthy business person and the NCAA knocks on your door, you know what I tell them? You got to get out of my office. But what if the FBI knocks on your door? I mean, what instead of answer to the NCAA, you answer to the FBI? In other words, hey, we fixed one of your problems. You guys ruined college football. The, the legislation that allows a salary cap to exist is now in play. Don't say that's anti-capitalism because the, the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball, I mean, they, they, once again, they get real creative in deferring salaries and, you know, Tom Brady took less money to make sure he had ample receivers, you know, to win championships. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of ways to be create, creative and, uh, and allows for creativity in that, in that marketplace. But in the process of saying, hey, college football programs in America today, you can fund your program to the tune of $4 million, $5 million, $6 million, whatever that number is. I don't know what the number um, needs to be. But if those of you who decide to go out of your way to break these rules and, and, and usurp the authority of, you know, these laws, it's not going to be an NCAA sanction any longer. It's going to be a full-fledged FBI investigation. Well, I mean, 
the FBI's got more important things to worry about than college football. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, don't make it a priority, but but put it. The threat of that, I think, changes the mindset of people. Yeah, so who it's criminal. Put, yeah, yeah, it's a criminal charge instead of a. I mean, if you're a rich guy that 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 you know supports Alabama football, that's is just an example. That could be Gamecock or Tiger football, and um and you know that by doing this, you're breaking an NCAA violation. Okay, I don't want to get caught, but if I do, so what? But all of a sudden, if it's say a felony. The risk-reward relationship Are you putting changes, your yes. livelihood and business at risk uh, for that? No, absolutely not. Um, 843-661-0937. But, but you think the ability for players to still jump around? I mean, the portal, there's no no sitting out and waiting. I mean, is that does that need to stay? or It needs to be modified. I mean, it's got to be modified. That's part of it. it. That's yeah, part of what it, it does. This. I don't know what the answer is there. Maybe you get one transfer per career. I, I don't know what the answer there is. I mean, I, I think the kids should be allowed to transfer and not sit out a year. But but I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, we're once again, I think we've gone from the kid having no leverage in multi-billion-dollar negotiations to the kid having too much leverage in multi-billion-dollar negotiations, and um, and they're going to abuse that. I mean, human nature says I didn't have any leverage. Now I got all the leverage. You think I'm not going to capitalize on having all the leverage? But, yeah, I mean, there needs to be some modification of NIL. There needs to be some mo- – I'm for a salary cap. I mean, I'm for a, a limited amount of money. You can. I understand Title IX, and I saw what the NCAA wants to do by allowing the universities to directly pay, I think, every student athlete $30,000. Have at it. I mean, do that. And let the collective be the supplement. Let the collective come behind the university. The university's obligated to Title IX. Whether you like it or not, it is what it is. There are more student athletes, there are more female student athletes on scholarship at the University of South Carolina than there are male. I mean, that's crazy. There's only about two baseball players on the University of South Carolina baseball team that are on full scholarship. Maybe three. That they both partial scholarships because you got this Title IX. And I would imagine it's something similar to that at Clemson. I mean, they live in that same world, abide by the same rules and, and bylaws and standards. But, uh, yeah, to begin, I had a birdie. Visit me sometime in my sleep last night. And I'm sure that I didn't hear it clearly, but it sounded kind of like a rocket taking off. Nice. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We've got a treat in store. Josh did yeoman's work. Secured Robert Cahaley from Trafalgar at about 830 this morning. Right, Josh? Am I right? That's correct. I text with Robert yesterday, and I said, Robert, before Christmas, I want to get you to agree to come on. Let's go through some of this polling you've done in Iowa and New Hampshire. New Hampshire poll came out yesterday. Robert said, dude, I think I'm on your show tomorrow. So, Josh, great work um, on getting Kahaley because I'm working him from that angle. You know, I'm leaning on with the old good old Pat on Robert. Remember me? I mean, we were close. <laughs> we do all these things together, and, you know, we fought the machine together, and Josh had already done it. Um, good work. Good work, Josh. Thank you. Um, it, it, under the weather and doing that kind of yeah. work, right? Impressive. Quite impressive. Yep. Yeah, quite impressive. And broke. I mean, he said yesterday how broke he was. Can't, can't you know, can't afford the necessities of life, much less the um, living the refined life. So I want to go to this real quick. And, um, <laughs> and, and by the way, speaking of, you know, we, that was in the context yesterday of how expensive things are when we were talking about that. I had another one of those exact same experiences that we've used as the example how many times on this show. I went to, on, on my lunch break yesterday, 
went to the grocery store, picked up a couple of things like we talked about. You know, just like I can't eat out every day, just can't afford it. So went to the grocery store, put a few things, and I used the small cart and a few things in the top of the cart. Okay. I said 30, maybe $40, 87. That's crazy. And I literally, it was but about, it happens to me yeah. too, Rev. I mean, I'm telling you, it's, and God forbid getting toothpaste or, you know, deodorant right. or something. And and this was like you know, dog, dog food, chicken breast, just and the ground basic beef. stuff. Yeah. 80 bucks. Yeah. Did it put a lot of pressure on the index finger when you grab that <laughs> single bag? I know when, you, when you grab it with that single index finger, and you're like, okay, there's no way that's eighty dollars worth of worth of product. It was one trip when I got home you know, to that's bring it in the house. Crazy, yeah. but the economic indicators and the liberal media oh, say yeah. Bi- oh, Biden's just doing a bad job of selling his uh, his agenda. Um, one of the things that 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 I noticed yesterday is, and I want to I want to stay here for a second because I'll tell you what, maybe we could encourage people. This would be a good. We do a whiner line once a week. Maybe we could ask our listeners. I mean, obviously we're not to demand anything. We're asking our listeners in this week's whiner, or maybe next week's next week would be a little better. Uh, Cause we do it when tomorrow, uh, maybe today, we yeah, do today, today, today or tomorrow. Um, we kind of, I mean, the callers dictate this. We try to squeeze it in on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, but we try to put you callers at front of the, of the line, but maybe we could suggest to our callers, ask of our callers, when you call the winer line, make it exclusively about a wine you have, about a recent recent shopping experience. There you go. You don't have to call the company's name. I mean, I'd rather you not. But, you know, yep. hey, I went out to eat with my wife and kid, and it was $103. Yeah. You know, and it was not for, filet for mignon. Yeah, yeah, it was not yeah. lobster tail and, and filet mignon. It was, you know, a regular meal because I'm a regular dude, and I'm ready to spend 40 or 50 bucks. And I spent, you know, um, a hundred or ninety or eighty or whatever or whatever that. No, I hear a lot of that. So maybe we could strongly encourage our esteemed and loyal audience to call the Winer line and whine about a recent recent shopping experience you had, what you thought you were about to spend, and what you inevitably um, did. And I, and I bet everybody has a story. The Weiner line is... It's a daily occurrence yeah, with me. It's it's open 24-7 right now. I'll give you the number. It's 803-720-5260. 803-720-5260. Yesterday in the gym parking lot, I, mean, I, I did my workout. I'm sitting in the parking lot, and I don't have my phone with me for a couple of hours while I work out and do my thing, take a shower or whatnot. So, so I catch up on my emails and my text. So, so I'm sitting in my truck. I'm, I'm responding to an email, and I realize I'm hungry. I'm going to realize I've not eaten yet. So I'm thinking about, okay, and all of a sudden, in, in, in one second, I said to myself, I'm going home. I mean, I've got peanut butter and jelly. I've got a handful of chips. I've got some Diet Pepsi there. I'm going home. That's, that's you know, an $8 lunch. I'm good. I mean, I, I would have gone on to a restaurant, sat down, or gone to a drive through got me some grub. But, but instead of that, I just, I'm answering the email, and I'm going like, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in a while. Um, yeah, I'm going home. Save that $15, $20. And I just wonder how many other people are doing exactly what, what I'm doing. I mean, I've got 15 bucks to go eat, but it, just, it grates on me to know that I'm giving in to the M2 money supply. Maybe my problem is I know too much. 
I mean, I know the M2 money supply should be 15 or 16 trillion and not 22 trillion. Um, if I walk up to the counter and, and, and say, hey, I'll take a, a sub sandwich, a drink, and a bag of chips, and they say that's $15, and I say, that damn M2 money supply. <laughs> right. I mean, that, 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 you, that's did, it. <laughs> did you know? You got a second. Did you know that the M2 money supply was $15 trillion before COVID? And that same bag of chips, sub, and drink would have cost me $9. And the reason it's 15 or 16 now is that John Brown M2 money supply and the increase from 15 to 22 trillion. I mean, can you imagine what, what a fast food worker would say if somebody if somebody bombarded them? Uh, you'd be a lunatic. They'd probably call the police and probably should. 843-661-0937. We got a call. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS, I'm sure is here to sell some of those Biden economic successes with us. Good morning, Williams. Hey, can you misquote me? I went to a 78 off of 95 yesterday at the e-market. Gas was $2.49. I got a food tank. Okay, I want you to fact check me on this. Since 1980s. Since 1989, there have been 50 million jobs created. There have been three Republican presidents and three uh, Democrat presidents. Out of those 50 million jobs, Democratic administration created 48 million jobs out of that 50 million jobs since 1989. When Bush left off, Bush won, left office, his unemployment rate was 7.1. Then Clinton came in, when he left office, his job, his job rate was 4.2. When, um, when the second Bush, Bush number two, left office, his job un- unemployment rate was seven point six. So um, Obama come in, his unemployment when he left office, it was po- four point six. So um, Trump come in, when he left office, it was six point four. And today. Biden is three point six. Check my check check me. Fact check me. And I get back with you tomorrow. Williams, Williams, you got you got a second answer a question for me? And I'm and yeah. I I trust you on those numbers. I'm not gonna fact check you. I trust you on those numbers. Let me, me. Let, let me ask you a question. What do you think the Democrats have done policy wise that have been so good for the economy? Well, number one. Um, help with innocent um, medicine, tapping the price of instrument, and um, helping people. Basically, Republicans didn't help nobody. What Trump did, he said he gonna make Mexico pay pay for the wall. Mexico ain't pay a damn penny. And he said he's going to replace Obamacare. Yeah, but I, I, I want you to ask the question. You know I, but I want to know the policies that you believe the Democrats have implemented that have created all the the positive econ- economic news that you're talking about. I mean, I get but you don't like Trump. Do. I mean, I understand that. You made that quite clear. But but I want to know, you're talking about Democrats creating better economies 
And I'm asking what they did to create those better economies. Hey, check the facts, man. Whatever they're doing, they're doing it right. Check the facts. That's all you got to do, check the facts. What you say or what I say don't matter. Just check the facts. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. I appreciate it. I'll take take that as a non-answer. I I just, I'll take that as you not wanting to answer the question because I'm asking a very specific question and you just refuse to give me an answer. With the facts, it don't matter. It happened. Fair enough. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. The reality is this, guys. Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter who's in the White House. The, The overwhelming majority of growth in our economy and job creation has been in the public sector. I mean, if you really look back the last 15 years since we invented, and we've done a little bit of it before then, but in 2008, we normalized quantitative easing. I mean, we began just creating money out of thin air at a, at a, at a pace we never imagined or, or never, uh, no country in human history had ever done what we decided to do in, o, in 08. I mean, the world's blowing up and economists advise politicians and they do X, Y, or Z. But out of that came a 15-year spell of enormous government growth, enormous increase in liquidity. So it's real kind of make-believe, hocus-pocus growth. I mean, I could easily argue, and some economists do, non-Keynesian, non-modern monetary, there are some of the neoclassical economists would argue that the only growth we've enjoyed, the absolute only growth we've enjoyed in the last 15 years has been government-induced growth, both job creation and um, GDP. I mean, I, I'm not saying that that every, I'm not saying certain sectors, I mean, we know technology. I mean, I don't know if there was a Facebook 15 years ago or a Twitter 15 years ago. I mean, we know technology and some of the, um, uh, some of that space, you know, that sector of the economy, the technology sp- sector of our economy has grown leaps and bounds. I mean, we can talk about overvaluing, you know, TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or, or Twitter. I don't have any idea what those companies are worth. Uh, I think I understand to some degree how they monetize uh, what they do. But but since 2008, when we began allowing government to do some of the creative things it decided to do, and both parties have been guilty of this, we suppressed interest rates to the point that they became somewhat of a stimulus. Uh, not somewhat. They were an absolute stimulus to economic growth. You could easily argue that the last 15 years has had absolutely no growth in the fundamentals of capitalism. I mean, it's all been about government spending. It's all been about government manipulating and distorting interest rates. It's been all about government creating fiat currency more and more and more and more. And here we are in 2023 with $33 trillion of federal debt and an economy growing at, I mean, you know, outside of government, I mean, the economy's growing at an anemic, what, 1.7 or 8 average since 2008. I mean, I know we have these big quarters, 5.2% in one quarter, 4.9%. In another quarter, but that's all about American Rescue Plan. That's all about the government, you know, letting money make its way into the economy or forcing money in some in some cases. I just don't know how anybody who's run for office for the last 15 years can look a voter in the eye and say, our policies have been good for the economy. I mean, I think Trump's policies were pro-business. I mean, I think deregulation, but that's not really a policy. I mean, that's more of a mindset. You know, a pro-business deregulating conservative Republican. I mean, that's from central casting, but, but I don't, I don't know that you can point to one specific policy that has been enormously advantageous for our economy. Take a break back in a few, you know, I don't want to steal Robert's thunder, but Robert and I talked yesterday. One of the questions I had for Kahaley and I'll let him elaborate when Robert 
comes on comes on at 8.30 this morning. And I want to say this. I mean, not that we're special here, but Robert doesn't do this for local television, I mean, radio. I mean, he just doesn't do this. I mean, Robert is to a place in his political career that, you know, he's on Fox News and he's on CNN and he's on, you know, he's quoted in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, he's big media and big time. I think last time, strategist. last time he was on with us, he actually called from the Fox studio in New York because he was in studio with Maria Bartiromo that morning. Yes, but but he's one of the preeminent pollsters in America sure. today. Um I mean, he doesn't like to be called strategist. I do that on purpose. I mean, when I introduce him, I say senior strategist. And if we were having a beer, Robert said, I'm not a strategist, man. I'm a pollster. I I was once a, a strategist. When I ran campaigns, I'm not a strategist any longer. I do that just to kind of get under his skin a bit. You know, one of those um kind of brotherly jabs. <laughs> you know, I can say this, but don't you dare say that uh, about him. But one of the interesting points that I, when I saw Robert's New Hampshire poll, I mean, that's what I texted him about. I didn't know that Josh had run him down and got him to come on on the show this morning. Good work, Josh. And I mean that sincerely. Um, I mean, if you're that good under the weather, just imagine what we could expect from him, Rev, once he fully I know. recovers. I mean, maybe you and I can. Apparently, I only operate when Well, sick, I mean, but... ma- 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 I'm thinking about <laughs> taking Fridays off if you're that good um, under the weather. <laughs> but but I, was, I was reaching out to Robert. One of the things that stuck out to me in the New Hampshire poll, hot off the press yesterday, was Ramaswamy had gone from five to ten? That's a big jump. I mean, that's doubling. It's not five percentage points. It's a one hundred percent increase. And I'm going like Robert. What in the world? I mean, did your poll miss something? I mean, is there something here? Is there some anomaly about the way you asked the question? And Robert said, not at all. In fact, we went specific to Ramaswamy when we saw the number go from five to ten. You know why Ramaswamy's numbers went from five to ten in New Hampshire? I'll let Robert elaborate, but in, in essence, you know why? Because he said January 6th was a con job. Hmm. How conspiratorial is that? Mm. Can you nice. say that and get away with, I mean, can you be, see, Josh is interested now. Josh is like, uh, Trump, Ramaswamy, I'm thinking hard about this now. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, he, he basically, in the debate, said, and you got to remember, guys, it's not a big audience watching the debate. But everybody watching, I mean, if you're watching, if you're a New Hampshire Republican primary voter and the debate's on and you know you're about to catapult a candidate or not into South Carolina, you're hyper aware. I mean, you're paying closer attention to what's happening in the Republican primary. And Robert said, when Ramaswamy said, I'm the only one on this stage that'll say January 6th was staged. It was a con job. The FBI infiltrated those protesters. And they egged on the events of, of what happened. And we should be ashamed that this many people have been arrested and incarcerated and given very stiff sentences. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, I'd stay away from that. I mean, I'd stay away from that. But when he said that, I mean, that, that's the most aggressive I've heard any Republican yet say regarding January 6th. Now, we're coming up on the anniversary. I mean, don't, remember this. In the early days of the Republican primary, And maybe that's Haley's strategy. The media are going to remind you nonstop of what happened January 6th. How many times do you believe you'll see the video of January 6th? And you won't see um, QAnon Shaman or Daniel Boone with horns. You won't see him being peacefully, you know, escorted through the the Capitol. You'll rather see, you know, the confrontation outside of the building. There there were some confrontations. I'm not denying that. And there was some misbehavior. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And there were people who broke laws and should be prosecuted. But but it's nowhere near 
what, what the media is trying to portray it as. And Ramaswamy said that. Now, now, put your thinking cap on for a second. We've got an Iowa caucus January 15. We've got the anniversary of January 6, what, nine days prior. You, you've got to believe that they're going to try to just hang this around Trump's neck day after day, minute after minute. Uh, I would imagine it'll begin somewhere around the new year. You know, upcoming, uh, you know, here's someone who was scared to death in the Capitol. Here's a, it'll probably be a female worker, you know, who uh, expresses her concern and her, her fear of what was going to happen. I mean, they, they'll do this. It'll be like the 12 days of Christmas. I mean, it'll be three or four days before January 6th. The media will tell the story. Now, they won't tell the accurate version. They'll tell what they want to tell. And then three days after that, and it'll be interesting to see if Trump pays a price in Iowa because that's fresh on people's mind. I've always felt that was going to be the strategy. And I don't know that Ramaswamy is somewhat of a surrogate. We know that Christie is a kind of a surrogate for the never Trumpers. I think the question you got to ask yourself is Ramaswamy going to be the shield? And I mean that in, in somewhat of a weird, you know, supporting way is, is Ramaswamy going to be the guy that addresses January 6th when the media starts what they will inevitably start blaming, you know, Trump and America first and MAGA and extremism and violence and disrespect and a lack of decorum is Ramaswamy going to kind of run interference for some of the, um, some of the, uh, some of the prospects of Trump, uh, winning the Iowa caucus, take a break back in a few. 843-661-0937. At times I believe Trump's campaign, Trump's candidacy, Trump's best moments are when do you really trust the government? I mean, it, it, it's subliminal. It's it's subconscious. It's um it's said in very inexact ways. But in essence, when Josh and Rev and I go to the poll and vote for Donald Trump, some of the motivation is, uh, I just don't trust those guys, man. I mean, it, this guy's a narcissist. This has got a lot of he's got a lot of flaws. He's got a lot of issues. He, he's not my hero. He's not my role model. But but ah, I, I trust them even less. I just I don't I don't know that they ever tell me the truth about much of anything. Mm-hmm. I do believe that is a large share of the motivation. I think the majority of people who go to the poll and vote for Trump are voting because they I didn't say all, but a large percentage are going because they just feel the government is so dishonest to to not be trusted on every front imaginable. There is no line of the sand of which they won't cross. And and I would even add this going back to when Trump first ran. I mean, what what motivated Republicans to start being interested in him as a as a serious candidate? I mean, for myself, drain the swamp. Well, for and for myself, it, it had to do with well, the Republicans who I've been supporting, you know, almost exclusively, not totally, but almost exclusively in my voting years, um, had said, if you vote for me, I'll do this, and then and especially when it came, they 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 weren't able to do anything about Obamacare, and that really offended me. And he got, you know, when he came out, he said, all right, I'll do it. I had no reason to believe the other guys, so I wanted to give him a shot. And that's kind of what started that interest. And uh, and here we are these years later. Um, but I want to go to something you talked about during the break a minute ago, and I don't even know if you were going to go here on the show. Uh, but you were talking about insurance companies mm-hmm. and questions that they're asking and how some of their, and these are these are like life insurance companies that obviously pay, you know, a, a a benefit upon death 
And you said that they are doing some research because some of their typical the, numbers aren't adding up. The insurance company paid out about 15% more in death benefits during COVID. That stands to reason. Right. I mean, now, that, that, know, that part makes sense. Sure. I mean, that, I, I get that. Um, the insurance companies now believe we're post-pandemic. I mean, we're completely and totally past the pandemic. Forget what Pfizer tells you. Pfizer's trying to sell you a vaccine and a booster. I mean, they're in it for the money. They're not in it for your safety and well-being. I don't know that they've ever been in it for your safety and well-being. I guess that makes me a vaccine skeptic. I'm not a denier. I've never said don't get vaccinated. I was just too skeptical. I was to be to be as interested in my health as I needed to be, I chose to not get the vaccine because I had too many questions. Josh ha- had a similar or had a uh, kind of a similar situation that cost him a job. But but here's the deal: the insurance companies are paying out today, and this is where it gets a bit inexact. Um, I mean, th- this these are hard numbers. The insurance companies, the life insurance companies, and I'm talking about paying out death benefit. It increased about 15% during the pandemic. Well, that, that stands to reason. Again, I mean, I, I would imagine you know, it's a tough day to be in the insurance business. Common sense applies. But it is what it is. Sense. Yes. But here's what's happened post-pandemic. And and it, and it plays into some of what we discussed and some of the reasons that I was skeptical about the vaccine. The insurance companies have a category called excess deaths among young working age people. I mean, that's a category. When they run these actuarial models, they say, okay, we're estimating this number to be X. And there's a historical reason they trust that number. And all of a sudden, post-pandemic, I mean, they, the insurance company, the life insurance companies actually gave a little benefit of the doubt. Okay, it may take a couple of years for some of these issues to work themselves out, but we're past that now. I mean, we're nearly in 2024, and the insurance company's models are still showing an excess death among young working age Americans a plus 158,000, and they can't make heads or tails of that number. The only way they can make heads or tails, now the government is saying, well, that's about opioid addiction. That's about obesity. That's about high blood pressure. That's about heart ailments. That's about cardiovascular disease. And the insurance companies are going, oh, we don't believe that. We had all that prior to COVID. I mean, we had obesity. We had opioids. We had um, cardiovascular disease. We had all these issues pre-COVID. The only thing we didn't have was the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. So the insurance companies in America, the American Health, the American Life Insurance Association, hired an analytical guru. And the analytical guru went to work to try and figure out why are we paying death benefits for young working age Americans at a, at a, at a higher rate than we ever have before, including during COVID. And the... The guru they hired to do the analytics and look at the math and data came back and said, the only correlation we see is not with opioids. It's not with cardiovascular disease. It's not with obesity. It seems to be in line with this vaccine adverse report events reporting system that CDC has on its website. They collected a lot of that data. They correlated that data with the plus deaths among young working age people and they believe that now. I don't want. They don't say this because they got to be careful. I mean, the, the the life insurance business needs the government in its corner, so to speak, because they're not. I mean, you know, New York Life. I mean, they're not just a life insurance company. I mean, they don't want to fall out of favor with government. Now, now I don't know what they'll do. Northwest Mutual. Um, I mean, they're some of the big and storied life insurance companies in America. 
I mean, they're in a lot of other. When they collect your premium, they don't put it in a shoebox. I mean, they invest that premium, and they're playing a game of math. I mean, they're saying, I mean, I've got life insurance. that They made a gamble that Ken will live past 20 years, you know, the term of his life insurance policy. And, and they've not accused the government of anything. But what they're basically saying is some of these young people that are dying and it's to the tune of about 158000 It's costing the insurance, the life insurance industry about $90 billion extra dollars a year in life benefits or in death benefit. And they believe that some of these people are dying because some of the negative effect of the vaccine. They've not said that. But the analytical guru that they hired said the only correlation he can find in the excess deaths among young working-age people, plus 158000 to the tune of $90 billion, is the vaccine adverse events reporting system declares this many incidents that led to this many complications, and it stops there. So did the event lead to a complication, and the complication lead to a death? That's the point of disconnect. But the analytical guru says, it looks to me like that's the dot we may try to need to connect instead of opioids. Now, the government is saying opioids and obesity and, and all these other things, and they're saying, okay, but we had all that prior to COVID. The one thing we didn't have is uh, 250 million people that had been vaccinated. That's the newfound phenomenon. We've got 250, American, 250 million Americans that have had at least one vaccine. Are you more at risk as a young working American having taken the vaccine today than you are having not taken the vaccine? I'm not making that accusation. But the guru kind of, sort of, is. Let's go to the phone. Hmm. Breeze, good morning. You're on. All right, kid, I'll be you the big there. Yeah, you are more at risk if you took the vaccine of died. In fact, they probably need to put it on the insurance question. If you had your vac- if you had a vaccine, and if you have had a vaccine, your premiums probably need to go up. That's just the bottom line, and everybody knows it. But you know the other thing I've been thinking? I always look for who to get, you know, I know who the bad guys are, and I know that the bad guys are for Russia, and I know that the bad guys are for China. And then I look at it, and I said, so why, why are they? I mean, you know, y'all, every movie you and I watched since we were kids has been uh, the, the, uh, the brave American or the brave Americans fighting the Russians, the Russians, the Russians, the Russians. Well, if it was the Chinese we fought in Korea, we didn't really fight, you know, we haven't really fought any Russian infantry, you know, in combat before. You know, there's some argument there were some Russian pilots in Vietnam, and they probably were. But we, the, only, the only people we've actually fought face-to-face is the Chinese. But how did they get a pass? Why are they still getting a pass? Why are these international corporations all pro-Chinese? Why are these Why are there all these Democrats and Republicans? A lot of them pro Chinese. You know, I'm I'm looking at some of the stuff the Chinese are doing, and nobody's even really. I mean, either they just do it, and nobody. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're they're going after our infrastructure. They're going after all of these things that make this country work. You know, and, uh, and you know, you start talking about uh, elections and stuff. Well, you know, kid, if somebody will kill you over your life insurance policy, what do you think somebody would do to be the president of the United States or to control?
control the world. I'm telling you, man, there's a lot of traitors out there on in politics on both sides of the aisle, anti-government and international uh, these international corporations. And uh, China is far more evil than Russia. I mean, you just look at who the bad guys are for. You know, they're for China. They're against Russia. That makes Russia almost a good guy, in my opinion. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I, I got to find an article. I read something yesterday. There's talk now in Washington about removing favored nation status from China and the World Trade Organization. They've appointed kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a, a China competitive committee on, on how to compete with China, what some of the geopolitical issues are in China. As part of this is tariffs. I'm going to imagine that. That's kind of a Trump idea. You know, I remember when the Heritage Foundation were looking for someone to run against Tom Rice. And I never had any interest, but they called me and asked me to ride down to the beach and sit down to be interviewed. And then, you know, I said, okay, I might be something to learn here. I had never had any interest at all. Um, but I went and I sat down and I listened. And I mean, the ba- Trump had basically farmed out candidate recruitment to the Heritage Foundation. And I sat down in, a, in an office room they'd rented, and I, and I talked and answered and talked and answered and talked and answered, and we got to trade. And something came up about, you know, China. And I said, you know, I would include tariffs. And the guy, you know, the the um, the, the, the the rigid ideal, idealist, I'm the guy that's so committed to his ideology, he can't be challenged. I mean, he wrote down, so you're for tariffs. That excludes you from being a likely um, candidate. That'll never work and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I mean, I'm not for tariffs. I'm, I'm for dealing with China differently than everybody else. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm, philosophically, I'm opposed to tariffs. I think tariffs cost the consumer. But but I, I believe you got to, China's unique. We got to deal with China in a very sort of unique way. I want to go back to Breeze's good guy, bad guy comment. So I'm talking yesterday to a real good friend of mine. He's an attorney. Um, he's he's a DeSantis voter. I mean, he's convinced himself that Trump's too much trouble, too, Trump's too much drama. Um, I want to do the moral and ethical and right thing and kind of move along. I mean, I, I'm conservative. I want a Republican to win. Joe Biden has no business in the White. I mean, he's got a lot of checks and boxes that you and I would have except when it comes to Trump, until now. And I said, well, what has brought you around? I mean, why? Because he's been a, I think he said DeSantis money. I mean, you know, he's been actively supporting Ron DeSantis and telling people in his universe that, you know, we got to vote for DeSantis. I mean, he's enough Trump and enough not, and, you know, we, we got to get a hybrid, and we got to win, we got to play in Pennsylvania. The likely storylines, we got to play in Pennsylvania, we got to do this and do that and do the other, bing, 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 bing. Sound like uh, Carl Icahn there. But anyway, he told me last night, we were talking about some Gamecock stuff, and he said, you're going to be proud of me. And I said, why am I going to be proud of you? He said, um, I'm, I'm for Trump. I said, you're what? I said, man, you've talked to Sanders for a year. I mean, I think you've given money and talked to all of your friends and neighbors about being for DeSantis. He said, there's too many of the wrong people there's too many of the bad guys trying to stop Trump from getting elected. And I'm not a dummy. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I'm not a dummy. Now, he's much closer to a rocket scientist than he is a dummy. I'll assure you of that. But he said, I got to be for Trump. You got to be for Trump, huh? Yeah. But because everybody that I believe are trying to harm and hurt the country, the last thing they want to do is see him get elected. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of good enough. Because Trump is kind of over the target to use another term. They're not opposing DeSantis like they are Trump. Oh, wow. And because of that, they've talked me into being a Trump voter. 
Wow. He, he said, I still don't think a lot of Trump. I mean, you know me. I don't like his style. I don't like his bombast. I don't like the way he conducts himself. But there's too many of the people that I believe are intentionally trying to hurt this nation and control this nation and control its people. And they evidently think Trump's a much bigger threat to them than DeSantis is. Where's my, where's my cap? Where, where's my MAGA cap? Where do I send a check? Because I'm back on Team Trump. Don't want to be back on Team Trump, but I think it's the absolute right thing to do. That's happening by the millions in America today. Thank you, media. Thank you, academia. Thank you, those afflicted with the Trump derangement syndrome. We can't elect him, but damn if you can't, and about are. Take a break. Back in a few. 4-3-6-6-1-0-9-3-7. Under the weather, no shot. Josh had a little bit of a reaction to my last comments. And this is a friend of mine who, once again, for the past year, and we remain friendly. I mean, he say, I mean, he he even says this, Josh. He says, I don't blame you for being for Trump. I mean, you host a conservative radio show. I mean, if I hosted a radio show, yes, I'd be for Trump. I mean, he's good for business, whether you wanted to be president or not. But but he's convinced himself now. And maybe some of this is DeSantis' slide. You know, it is not, it, it looks to me like DeSantis is going to probably not win Iowa. And if he doesn't win Iowa, he probably gets out of the race. He doesn't make it to, to New Hampshire. Maybe, I don't know what his funding is. I don't know what, um, DeSantis has a salvageable political career. DeSantis can come back in 2028 and be a contender. I mean, I'm not saying he wins. I'm not saying he's the front runner. I don't think Nikki can. I mean, I don't think Nikki can come back in 28. If if I'm right, and who knows? I mean, I'll ask Robert this in about an hour. If I'm right and two-thirds of the Republican primary voters ascribe to America first philosophy, there's no way Nikki comes back in 2024 and says, forget who I was in 20, um, or excuse me, in 2028, and says, forget who I was in 2024. This is the new improved in America first, Nikki Haley. I think she charted her course. She's declared her path. And, and I know Nikki well enough to know that she has a plan. I mean, she knows the likelihood of winning is slim. I'd argue slim to none and slim just left town. But, you know, there's still a mathematical chance that something crazy could happen. I mean, go back to January 6th. I mean, what if that does work? What if the media puts on a, a, a you know, kind of a Steven Spielberg production and the cathedral is in all its glory and splendor and out of that comes, ah, Trump was responsible for that, and I don't want to go back there again. I mean, I don't think that happens, but it's mathematically possible. I mean, it's not impossible for minds to be changed and moods to be swayed if the media is effective in convincing some Republican voters that Trump's the reason all this craziness happened. He did incite an insurrection. It was an insurrection, and we need to move past. I mean, I don't think that works. But that's the strategy that they will employ. That's where we're headed, and that's why I think Ramaswamy kind of you know went on the record on CNN and at the debate saying it was a hit job, it was a con job, it was a fabrication. Uh, the FBI was in on it. Pelosi was in on it. Uh, they egged these people on. I've consistently said I think Trump is partially responsible. I mean, I've been very consistent in that. I think he peddled fantasy. I think he convinced people that wanted to believe something that it was believable. Um, I'm not saying he was right or wrong, but they'd certify the election. Are they waiting to certify um, the election? The formality of the peaceful transition of power was to be had. Um, but, but you know, DeSantis can probably come back in 2028. Um, Trump will be gone from the scene. 
I don't know what Trump will do about a VP candidate. Whomever Trump picks as the VP is going to be the heir apparent to America first. I mean, they're going to have a significant upper upper hand. Um, I mean, th- this will be one time. I don't know that it wins or loses the, the race, but it does have, it has the ability to set somewhat up like never before. A little which, bit like George H.W. Bush. Which is why, you know, early on in the discussions, my, my ideal team would have been Trump DeSantis. You know, I thought he would have been a good, and, and you've never heard me talk bad about no, DeSantis. I mean, I've never, my, my, well, I mean, DeSantis, I mean, the, the, the problem with the polling, and this is where, I mean, I, I read something yesterday about New Hampshire. Trump's at 45. Nikki's at uh, 16 or 17. DeSantis, uh, Christie's at 13. I mean, Christie's basically camped out in, in New Hampshire. I mean, he's a Northeast Republican. I guess they see him as one of their own, kind of a kindred spirit. He's from New Jersey. They're from New Hampshire. Uh, you know, that Northeast part of the country. There, there's some, I don't know, Rev, some just... Friendly, I, what am I? Th- there's some um, comfort level that they have with someone like Chris Christie as a moderate Republican, a globalist interventionist, a Republican. But when you take Christie's numbers and Nikki's numbers and combine them, you do get to about 32 or three percent. And that okay, if you're a Trump fan or a Trump voter or a Trump campaign surrogate, you're going like, wow, okay, that gets closer than we're comfortable with. Trump's at 45. You know, if you, if if Christie were to get out of the race. Before New Hampshire, I don't think he will, but if he did and endorsed Haley, the majority of Christie voters would go to Haley because that would be the establishment vote. Um, that gets her to 20, uh, 35. I mean, if every Christie vote went to Nikki, I think it gets her to, what, 18, 32 or 3-ish, somewhere thereabout. I mean, the Trump world would say that's too close. I mean, we don't want it that close. DeSantis is at about 12%, 11 or 12%. Trump gets about 60% of that vote, maybe 65, 35. So Trump picks that up. But Ramaswamy's at 10%. I mean, do you really believe that a Ramaswamy voter is going to vote for Nikki Haley if he gets out? And this, and Iowa will clear the field some. I mean, Iowa will kind of, kind of chart a path for a Ramaswamy or a Christie. Uh, you know, what happens here? Where do you go there? I've often believed that Christie's strategy is to not compete in Iowa to compete with everything he's got in New Hampshire and a couple of days before the New Hampshire primary, get out and beg and plead his 13% to jump on board with the other establishment Republican being Nikki Haley. Now, is there a deal to be made there? I, I, I don't know. I, I still think four, I mean, I know 43 beats 35, but it does get in the window of opportunity. The, the wild card is you've got another 21% in DeSantis and Ramaswamy and I think between that 21%, I mean, I'll get Robert's opinion here. I think Trump gets all of Ramaswamy's. Let, let's say Nikki gets all of Christie's. I mean, they're not going to get all, but I'm just saying for argument, gets 95% of Christie voters. I mean, that gets her, you know, north of 30%. Trump's at 43. Mm, okay, that's more competitive than I'm comfortable with. If he's the um, overwhelming favorite, well, all of a sudden, Ramaswamy gets out. And that 10% goes where? To Nikki Haley? Of course not. It goes to Donald Trump. DeSantis gets out. If DeSantis doesn't win Iowa, he's got to get out. I mean, he's got to get out or he embarrasses himself. He finishes fifth. I mean, if DeSantis goes to New Hampshire not having won Iowa, he finishes behind Ramaswamy. And if he wants to be a part of the Republican Party moving forward, he can't do that. Now, I don't know what he wants to do. I don't have any idea if he wants to come back. 
in 2028, new and improved and better. The one thing we've learned about DeSantis in this campaign, he ain't real good at it. I mean, he's just not real good at it. He's a bit of a goofball. True. I mean, he's a technocrat. He knows what he's talking about. He makes perfect sense when he explains his positions. He's he's taken on Disney. He's um he's taken on the teachers union. He's run a good, solid, conservative government in one of the biggest states in America. I think the 15th biggest economy in the world is Florida. I mean, he's done a good job of governing the state of Florida, but on the campaign trail, Josh, he looks a bit goofy. I've heard uh, this comes from other people, but he's been described as really good middle management material. Okay. Which that, I, I kind of agree with that. Put him in an office. Tell him what to do. Tell him to run this division of this company. He'd probably run it better than anybody but, but, but ever. Does has. that mean he would be a good president? Well, of course he'd be a good president. But there's more to getting president. You know what he got to do? It's a little bit like the Seinfeld episode. Taking and holding the reservation, <laughs> right? Right. You know what? You know what? You can take the reservation, but but you know what you got to do before you can hold the reservation? You got to win that election. Mm-hmm. I mean, he got to be good at getting votes, and he seems to not be the best in the world at acting natural on the campaign and trail. We, we learned when he called and called us and did, did an a interview, great job. He did a great job. One Phenomenal. on one on the telephone. Did and, a great job. But but if you close your eyes and watch the debate, he does fine. But there's something about his demeanor. There's something about he just looks visually uncomfortable. But with the cameras rolling and he's got these awkward uh, it's just it's a weird smile. It's a weird movement. Guys, it matters more than you can imagine. I would argue that the voters don't even know how much it matters. I mean, you, you know, he does these things. You're like, I, why, why don't I like DeSantis? He makes a lot of sense. But I mean, he, he, he just he looks a certain way. <coughs> his movements, are a, there's a certain awkwardness to his movements. And, and Trump just kind of strolls on the stage, you know, chest out. Look at me. Everybody look at me. Um, you know, do I think I'm all that? Sure I do. Do you think I'm all that? I don't care. Doesn't matter to me if you do or not. But there, there's a degree of comfort he has when he strolls out on stage. Now, Trump has had a lot of experience in front of cameras. Reagan had a lot of experience in front of cameras. The television is the trick. I mean, it's the ticket. You know the story as good as I do, Reb. In the, in the presidential debate between Nixon and Kennedy, I mean, they were polling back then. And if you listen to the debate on the radio, you thought Nixon won in a landslide. If you watch the debate on television, you thought Kennedy won in a landslide. The mm-hmm. optics matter. It, it, you know, does he look comfortable? Does he look normal? Does he look natural? Does, is he comfortable with me? Because when you appear to be uncomfortable, you make the voters uncomfortable. I mean, when you're a little bit awkward, they get a little bit uncomfortable with you. Like, wow, dude, this looks weird. The way he, the way he moves around is just makes me a little bit nervous and uncomfortable. And that matters more than you can ever, ever imagine. Take a break. Back in a few. Somebody called yesterday. We're jumping around a lot today. No phone calls. So, I mean, some days are slow on the phones. Phone calls normally dictate the content and direction of the show. Somebody called yesterday and was frustrated about the city of Florence. I don't want to pick on anybody, but it is what it is. The city of Florence has decided, because uh, I got a copy of an email yesterday. A listener to the show, a friend of mine, sent me a copy of an email from the utility finance department. And when you pay your water bill now, there will be two charges that show up on your on your um, on your bank statement. It will be the charge for the actual water bill, and then the processing fee. You know, if you use a credit card or a debit card or an ACI, whatever, whatever, whatever fee is associated with that processing, they're they're charging you extra. They're doing what some businesses 
are doing. Uh, you can like it or not, but, you know, um, some businesses have, well, let me gas, cash price, credit price. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, the convenience store owner building in the cost of, you know, um, uh, the processing charge that goes along with that. used to be the businesses that. would absorb the merchant fees, Correct. basically. Correct. And now they've just gotten so expensive and so predominantly a part of the purchase. They're not a lot of, I mean, when, when, when credit cards and debit cards constitute 10% of your business, you just kind of write it off at the cost of doing business. But when it becomes 75% of your business, you got to adjust and, and calibrate and, and revisit. And that's what the city has done. I've got this wild idea and the city of Florence won't like this at all. And I'm sorry, I'm not here to make the city of Florence happy. Um, in the, you know, because somebody said yesterday talking about inflation and too much month at the end of the money. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about, I, I began this morning show, an economic indicator ain't the same as affordability. And the consumer today, the average American, are having a problem with affordability. I mean, the rent's just too damn high, as the famous um, candidate from New York City said, uh, very prophetically, I might add. But but I've got a theory and an idea. I was walking around the track yesterday uh, after the workout, and the endorphins were flowing, and I'm feeling good, and I've got a big sweat going on. Um, and I started thinking about the email I got and the concern the caller had about you know, things are getting more expensive. Not only has the water bill gotten really expensive, now they're going to, you know, send me a bill for the water bill and deduct separately the processing fee for the debit credit ACH um, transfer. What if, because the city of Florence doesn't own the water system, the taxpayers do. What if the taxpayers put their water department up for bid? What if a private company could do a better job managing the water department for the city of Florence, city of Jacksonville, city of Des Moines, city of Chicago, wherever? I mean, we, we, we make this mistake of believing that the city owns the water department. You own the water department. I mean, the city doesn't have money. The city doesn't build things and provide. I mean, they're, they're in the service business. So the amount of taxes you pay to the city in turn, provide the level or degree of services that you receive from the city. Water would be a service we receive from the city, but the city doesn't own the water system. You do. So why shouldn't you be able to decide who you want to run that water department? I'm with you. Well, I mean, you you assume the debt. I mean, I, I would imagine they've got bonds and investments and they've got, you know, treatment facilities and they've got employees and whatnot. And I don't know what it costs to run the water department of the city, but if you're frustrated by, and this would be the impetus, I mean, I'm not saying this is the straw that broke the camel's back, but this is, I mean, they've accepted that they're in a business. I mean, even in the email, it said, we're doing what a lot of other businesses have done, but the difference is the other businesses compete, compete. You know, we're talking about sub sandwiches and hamburgers and, 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 you know, uh, meals and, and gas. I mean, they're out there competing. The one thing the city does not have to do is worry about a competitor. But what if they did? What if they did? What, what if every four years we put the city's water department up for bid? I mean, it belongs to you. I mean, you're ultimately the boss. It's a little bit like Zelensky had a meeting, guys, with military defense contractors. I mean, when Zelensky was in Washington, there was a special meeting for him with military defense contractors. <laughs> I read that. I about 11 CEOs. You know what's not in the room? The taxpayer. Mm-hmm. I mean, they build the weapons. Ukraine needs the weapons. Zelensky's there petitioning for the weapons. 
But guess who's not there? The people that pay for the weapons. They're not included. So if the city of Florence is going to say in the name of doing business, and that's their email, that we're doing what other businesses have chosen to do, we're passing along that expense to our consumers, I get that. I'm not saying yay or nay to that. But you're basically arguing that you're in business. But you're kind of not because nobody's competing with you. What do we do if we don't like the 2.5% processing fee? Do we go down the street to another water department? Do we, do we, do we um, you know, order another water system from Amazon? Do you cancel your account? You're, you're stuck. I mean, <laughs> right. if you want water, you've got one provider. Exactly. So what if? And the reason I'm saying this is the city of Florence basically said, we're in the business of water. And in that business model, we're, we're taking it on the chin in regards to the processing fees. So we're doing what business does. We're passing along that expense to our consumers. Fair enough. Except you're not really in business because businesses compete with other businesses. You have a monopoly. But what if you didn't have a monopoly? What if the taxpayers of the city of Florence could decide every four years who they want to run that business? What if we had a, 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 water, site, a, a water department oversight commission of quality, competent businessmen and women? And eight companies bid on providing water. I mean, they, 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 they assume control of the water system. I mean, they're not building new treatment plants unless there need to be new treatment plants built. They submit a proposal. Here's what we think we can run the water department for. I mean, is it 20 less employees? Is it 20 more employees? Is it this much per gallon? Is it that much per gallon? Because the city basically said, we're in the business of delivering water. And this has gotten expensive, but you're not in the business of delivering water. You're in the monopoly of delivering water. And I'm not angry about the city of Florence doing this, but they kind of opened that door. I mean, I could read the email verbatim. We're in the business, but you're not. You're not. What if you were? How much better would the water department at Florence be if the people running it today had to compete with people who wanted to bid on running that water department? Is it $10 million a year to run it? Is it $20 million? Does there need to be another $40 million? Have they um, neglected some of the critical infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Big time neglect of the critical infrastructure, but that's water, no pun intended, under the bridge. <laughs> but what if we began considering privatizing some of these entities and utilities that are monopolies? I mean, you can't, you can't ask the, the competitor to come in and build a new water system to compete. But, but that's not what I'm asking. The taxpayer owns that water system. The taxpayer gets to decide who they want to run and entrust the authority of actually delivering a quality service at a fair price. It's just it's something that, I mean, the busy head syndrome, a good workout, and walking around the track will get you. But, but once again, to me, they open the door. When they said we're doing what most other businesses do, we're passing along a burdensome expense. But you're not really in business. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence, good morning. Good, uh, good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, the, with regard to the credit card surcharges, this seems like a pattern, you know, that is, you know, that has started, for the, like it's middle class addictions. You know, when cable TV started, it was nine ninety five a month with, with no commercials 
and, you know, cell phones were, were cheap. And once we, we get used to these things, you know, credit cards, uh, you know, I don't even carry cash anymore. I think once we once we get addicted to them, then it's hard to give them up. I, I even put self-serve gas in that category. I remember when you used to save 5% or 5 cents a gallon when you pumped your own gas. Now you pay 10 cents a gallon more when you use your credit card. Um, uh, you know, self-service bagging at Walmart. <laughs> They've got us conditioned to do their work for them and charge us more for the privilege. But I guess what, with regard to the credit card, what I noticed um, happening that incurred businesses and, and the Department of Water to add these surcharges is the cashback programs. I think once some of the credit cards started giving one and a half, two percent cash back to those people who are using the credit cards, I guess that's when the service charge became a little bit overwhelming because it's not just the processing fee. They're actually cutting checks back to the users of the credit card. So uh, we, we have ourselves to blame for becoming dependent upon all this stuff. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. A um, lot to chew on there. We don't have time. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Don't local governments know how fortunate they are to have a radio show host like yours truly <laughs> oh. in the community? <laughs> yeah, I bet if you ask them how fortunate they are. <laughs> well, what, what they say to my face is probably not what they say behind <laughs> behind my back. No, it, Not it, when it, you do things like this. Well, I mean, but, but what am I doing? Well, you know, you no, picked well, what a, am I doing? So you saw this email. Well, first of all, you're applying. Some Somebody co- asked yesterday. Let's yeah, go all the a, way. A, in, a caller. In, in the beginning. Yep, a caller. Someone called yesterday and said, I don't like this. I'm they raised the issue. That's right. And, and I said, I don't know much about it. Let me see what I can find out. During the show yesterday, a friend of mine sent me an email that they received from the city of Lawrence. And it basically says exactly what the caller said. They're going to charge you for your order bill, and they're going to charge you for the processing fee, the surcharge for the credit debit ACH transaction. But in their justification for this, they referred to basically the city water uh, company as a business. We're doing what all other, what many other businesses are doing. That's hmm. in their email. Hmm. I'm not I'm not making that okay. up. And, and, and somebody with a busy head goes, but you're not really in business. I mean, you're really not in business. Applying the same rules to business and, and a monopoly like a water system is just dishonest. I mean, that's fundamentally dishonest. I get that it costs the same. I understand that the surcharge on a water bill is the same thing as a surcharge on a six-pack of beer. I mean, I understand that. But but to believe that you're in the business and, and you're competing like other businesses, and that's why you're having to do this, that times are – I mean, you know, it's the, the, the competitive advantage – that's just not the case. So my point is, if you're going to declare yourself a business, then may, let's make you a business. And, and it reverts to the fact that the city of Florence does not own the water system. You do. We, the taxpayers, own the water system. So what if we, the taxpayers, were empowered every four or eight years to decide who we want to run that business? We we elect a water commission. I mean, you know, we decide who we want to have oversight over the contractual negotiations. Where do we extend lines? Where do we add service? Um, The city doesn't do that at its own discretion. I'm not saying they're doing a bad or good job. I'm not arguing that. I'm just arguing. What I am arguing is whoever put that email and included the word business needed to not include the word business because that opens the doors for somebody like me to say, but you're not really a business. So let's treat it like a business. And let's bid the authority to run that business, regionalization, uh, privatization. I mean, that debate can go a lot of different places. 
Um, is there a company out there somewhere that believes they can run that water system better? I got to believe there is. Is there government bloat in the city of Florence's water system? Is, is, there, is there issues with how they deliver water, the quality of water, the lack of growth? The, 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 you know, I mean, th- those are all important issues. And when you suggest to the consumer that you're competing like businesses, then let's give you what you're asking for, a competitive environment that is ultimately and almost always good for the consumer. Back in a few. Not only is the rent too high, health insurance is obviously too expensive. I mean, I went on the uh, the exchanges just kind of dabbling around, playing around, seeing what this would do or what that would do. Um, they never asked me how healthy I was. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, all they asked me, do you smoke or not? You know, nothing else. I mean, it was about where do you live and, and what plans are available. Nobody, I'm buying health insurance. Somebody asked me how healthy I am. Because if I'm unhealthy, I need to be charged for it. If I'm healthy, I need to be rewarded for it. Not the case in Obamacare, the great socialization of health insurance, Josh. The only way Obamacare sustains is for younger, healthy people like you to pay too much for health insurance that you hardly ever use so older, unhealthy people don't have to pay enough for health insurance that they will use over and over and over again, um, back in the USSR is where we are when it comes to, to health insurance. People have gotten creative, and they've come up with different sorts of ways to skin that cat. One of the people that we partnered with is Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare. Um, if you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, you should be rewarded for that, right? You won't in the current construct of health insurance in America today. But Christian can help you. 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to the website, realchoicehealthcare.com. Josh, I think you've got a meeting. I don't want to put your business on the street, but I think you told me this morning you've got a meeting set up with Christian. I did, yes. Um, you know, Like I said, don't want to air out my laundry uh, on the air, but... Uh, my current health it's just insurance too provider, I'm like, dude, I'm paying $200 out of my paycheck, and I, I basically— if And you I got go a $6 million the, deductible problem. <laughs> pretty close. Yeah. Feels I mean, like I, it. I mean, after you meet your deductible of $6 million, we'll pick up the bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not yeah. insurance. No. We, we don't have insurance any longer. Put together your premium and your out-of-pocket. I mean, that's what health insurance is costing you every single year. The absurdity of the model— and, and, you know, we couldn't overturn it because John McCain got mad with Donald Trump because Trump said something he shouldn't have said and gave the old thumbs down um, to that. Speaking of Cheney, you know something interesting to me? And I, and I got to say it this way because it's the only way that I, that I can say it. The, the mainstream media kissing Dick Cheney's daughter in the ass <laughs> is the most disgusting and, and, and revived. I mean, it's just it's so, wow, Really? <laughs> I mean, this was the heartless warmonger of 20 years ago. And now his daughter says that Trump is unconstitutional. And, you know, if you, if you vote for him, you're voting for anarchy. And she's and the darling of the mainstream media. And the media loves her. I mean, the media is fawning over Dick Cheney's daughter. Although your skillful segue there from McCain to Cheney was kind of 
quick and well, I mean McCain, Cheney. Yeah. They I were mean, both never Trumpers. Right. And you know, they they both represent the logic of yesterday. That I kinda was, like that. That was a skilled move. I mean, right? I, you know, I mean highly skilled here. Yeah. I mean highly skilled. I, I doubt that um I doubt they name a water tower or a school after me anytime <laughs> soon I, I, I in did this see, area. I did see you tweeted yesterday about that, about the Liz Cheney or Dick Cheney's daughter, as you called her. The heartless warmonger of days gone by, you know, that, that Republican heathen that they made movies about and I mean, he's the most hated, hated man in the liberal media. Well, I mean, as long as his daughter hates Trump, then, you know, they're good with her. So now she is the, um, she is the, the, the moral compass of the Republican party. She's the consciousness that we all need, um, and, and celebrate eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven. We're going to do something a bit different this morning. We're going to, we're going to, we normally get jammed up at the end of an hour. We're going to get jammed up at the beginning of an hour. We want to make sure we give Robert uh, appropriate time. Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar, senior strategist, who doesn't like to be called strategist, he'll be with us at about 8.30 to basically uh, dissect the results from his poll in Iowa and um, in New Hampshire. I stole a little bit of Robert's thunder. Robert and I were texting yesterday because I couldn't make heads or tails of how Ramaswamy went from 5 to 10. I mean, that's not that's not a five percentage point increase. I mean, that's a one hundred percent increase. And Robert swears that it's because Ramaswamy on the stage at the debate and on CNN said that January six was uh, uh, you're talking about a conspiracy. January six was the government conspiring against the Trump voter. Pelosi was in on it. The FBI was in was in on it, and he goes up five percentage points. In a um in a Democrat primary, uh, that's Republican. that's pretty. Or excuse me, a Republican uh, primary. You say you saw where Zelensky was meeting yesterday with some of the military industrial complex. I mean, the, the yeah, Republicans I I, and Democrats in Washington. Imagine this, guys. I just shook my head and I mean, said, the, "Of course he is." Well, I mean, and, and I go back to crazy. something. Well, I mean, and I and I mean this sincerely. When we did our podcast with Dr. Fred Carter, a good friend of mine, and one of the best college presidents. I mean, we don't know. You know my feelings about higher education at times, but but if every college were run by somebody like Fred Carter, we'd all be in a better in a better place. But Dr. Carter said, when when I I didn't challenge him, but I basically asked him about the monolith called higher education, the fact that they all seem to believe very similar things. Now, now I've since decided that the majority of danger to the country are the elite universities that provide. I mean, Blinken. Buddha Judge, Granholm, um, Garland. I mean, I could go about one half of all the senior level staffers in the White House went to the Ivy League schools. Throw in a George Washington, throw in a Georgetown, um, throw in a may- maybe ah uh, Duke's North, uh, nah Duke doesn't Duke south of the Mason Dixon line, and that's um you're not qualified enough if you went to Duke. Um, you go off in law and make a bunch of money, but you can't, and you marry a Biden. If you went to, um, I mean, Sarah Biden, remember that name, guys. Remember the name Sarah Biden. I'm waiting to hear more. I mean, you're going to hear a lot more about Sarah Biden. Mary Jim Biden, she's a Duke Law graduate, wanted to live like the rich and famous, and they have lived like the rich and famous, but she's going to end up being the central figure. Hunter's not smart enough. Joe's not smart enough. Jim's not smart enough. I think she may be. I mean, I think she may be the brains behind, hey, Let's get all this money coming in. I'll figure out a way to get it to who it's supposed to. A lot of the checks she signed say loan repayment. 
loan repayment. Yep. But she's a Duke Law graduate, and that excluded her. That's south of the Mason-Dixon line, and anybody south of the Mason-Dixon line is excluded from making major impacts on our on our federal government. That's only reserved for those who went to Ivy League uh, institutions. So let's do this, Josh. Instead of getting jammed up at the back, let's get jammed up at the front to make sure we give Robert Cahaley sufficient time. I mean, he, he won't join us in the next segment. We're going to do a short segment after this. Robert has some time at 8.30 to call in, and that's really odd for us because we don't take breaks at that time. But we are this morning. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number on this Wednesday morning. We've jumped around. We gave you fair warning that about 830, senior strategist from Trafalgar, Robert Cahaley, will be with us. And Robert, I think, is on the phone. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning, Ken. How are you? We are doing well. Um, I want to jump right into this, Robert, because there's a lot to talk about. Your recent polling in New Hampshire and Iowa show that Trump is probably as strong as he's ever been in a presidential election. Is that the case? Yeah, I would say so. I, I think that he's extremely strong uh, in, bo- in both places. Uh, and these are not places that you can characteristically be this far out. Uh, th- these are not places that people usually have very big leads. So that is significant. Why, Robert? I mean, why is why? I mean, he's got he's got two impeachments. He's got ninety one indictments. We're, we're we're heading to the anniversary of January six. I mean, every all the traditional logic of politics says this guy should be in trouble. Why is he surging as he is? I think because people have the impression that he has gone through everything you just described because he kicked a hornet's nest. And that was the hornet's nest they wanted kicking. That's why they elected him. You know, people talk about uh, that they don't feel like that things are working properly. But what what more people have felt like, and this was in 16, that the government and the society is a well-oiled machine that is not treating them very well. And all they wanted to do was throw a monkey wrench in that machine. And Trump was that monkey wrench. And, you know, the empire struck back. And, and it was one of those things where people see all that he's going through and thinks there must have been something to what he was saying or they wouldn't hate him so bad. They would be trying so hard to keep him from getting back in there. Robert, it seems to me, you're the expert. I was a pretty decent candidate. It seems to me he's getting better advice. The campaign is, is more coherent. It's, it's better run. It's better managed. Their own message. They know when to speak loudly and when to kind of be quiet and let things play out. Am I interpreting something not true, or is that the reality? I think it's a mix of better advice and better distraction. The most dangerous thing is Trump when he has nothing to do. When he's sitting around the White House with no major distraction and says something he shouldn't say or tweets something at 3 in the morning he shouldn't tweet. But right now, he is his attention is occupied. You know that the you know the out of it like the idle hands are devil's workshop, but his hands hadn't been idle in a long time. Do these trials have a chance to change the nominating of a primary? I'm not talking about the general, but but rather the primary. Do do the trials have an opportunity to be effective in changing what may or may not happen in the Republican primary? You're always hesitant 
to use the word inevitable. And you and I text a little bit yesterday, and you agree that he is in as strong a position as he's ever, but let's be careful about the inevitableness or not. I think they do have a chance, but but there's a lot of things that would have to fall in place for the for what's going on in court to matter because this this nomination is probably going to be over uh, by Super Tuesday and it's going to be set on course by what happens in South Carolina. And so, if the things play out the way they're looking right now, uh, with Trump probably winning, uh, Iowa and winning it with a, a good number, and uh, DeSantis coming in second. And I think keep your eye on Ramaswamy, because if he can turn out those people that he's talking about, those young people that are not being polled, he can make a surprise third, which would really kind of wound Haley coming out of there fourth. And then if you still have Christie in the race, then he divides that vote with New Hampshire that she would have if he got out. And then you have the distinct possibility of Trump, you know, wins New Hampshire and um, you got Haley doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't do what she could do without Christie and Ramaswamy's got a little new energy and uh, coming out of Iowa, DeSantis has new energy then that race stays very, very divided. And by the time you get to South Carolina, you may or may not see something like, um, you may or may not see something like uh, one of the, one of the more pro-Trump candidates, Ramaswamy or DeSantis, depending upon how how things are looking after New Hampshire, they they may or may not fold in the tent depending upon what's left money-wise. But if he, but he goes in South Carolina, he runs really strongly, I mean, like a, a real, you know, something like 50% of the vote, even in Haley's home state, then I think he's off to the races on Super Tuesday, and it really won't matter. But here's the one thing, and this is what history teaches us, is that when South Carolina's primary is on Saturday, and Super Tuesday is the Tuesday right after, what happens in South Carolina is a lot for everywhere else. When South Carolina's primary is on Tuesday and Super Tuesday is a week and two days later, things change. And that was the difference between everybody else and Gingrich. Gingrich had a whole week. If he'd have rode that momentum when he won the nomina- when he won South Carolina in 2008, if he'd have rode that, if he'd that all the way through, uh, he would he would have dominated on Super Tuesday. But a week. That momentum died, and then TV took took over. Robert, if DeSantis has put all of his eggs in Iowa's basket and he doesn't win in Iowa, is there any chance he gets out? And if he gets out, does Trump advantage? Is Trump more advantage with the with with DeSantis not being in New Hampshire, or South Carolina? I don't think. I think DeSantis put his eggs in that basket, but I think. He's done it so he can have a competitive second. I really don't think there's, he's under any illusions that he's going to come in first. Um, but I think if he were to do something like underperform, like Trump wipe him out and him come in a distant second. And I think the Sanders campaign is going to be completely based on the resources left. 
right now already Haley has got enough big money pumped in that she will not get out over money in the next six weeks. She has enough money to not, not to get out anywhere. Um, so it, that's what it kind of comes down to. But about 85% of DeSantis' voters will reluctantly vote for Trump because most of them are America first types who just don't think Trump can do it. But they, and they really just, just cannot possibly see um, a Haley because she just kind of represents everything they're against. But there, there was some initial DeSantis people that were very much kind of in the never Trump crowd. Most of them have peeled off by now and gone to Haley or gone uh, to Christie. But most of them go that way. And but over ninety five percent of the Ramaswamy supporters go go to Trump. Robert, so, I mean, you've got two lanes, like I've been saying. There's two lanes. When you when you look at your New Hampshire poll, you've got Haley at eight. You got Trump at forty five. Haley at eighteen. Christie at fourteen. When I add 18 and 14, I come up with 32. I've argued, and mine is very unscientific, that the Republican primary voter today are about two-third America firster, one-third establishment-oriented, the logic of yesterday, the logic of days gone by. Your Haley Christie cumulative kind of suggests I'm in the right ballpark. Is that, am I close when I say it's kind of a two-third, one-third division between establishment voters and America Firsters. Yeah, I think it's it's not a hard line. You have you have people who kind of bleed over and feel a little bit in both camps, uh, and in many ways, Haley tries to be in both camps. But I think that you're exactly right that that you have that division. Now, what would make a New Hampshire dangerous for Trump is if Christie were to get out put those numbers with Haley, then knowing that the Democrats have known since well before October that Biden was not going to compete in New Hampshire, that which gave them the possibility of a lot of Democrats who wanted to vote the Republican primary to just call for trouble, they could have re-registered as independent, which happens quite often, and there was a surge in that right before the October deadline. Add those people to the regular independents, all on one side, probably, you know, if they got fired, if they if they all motivated to vote against Trump plus Haley plus Christie, that could spell a little trouble because that's not really a fair sampling of Republicans. It's it's a sampling of Republicans with Democrats wearing independent hats and independents, and, and that's the that's the path I think is most dangerous for Trump. And needs to be avoided. So if that is a Trump. but but if that's a chance, I mean, if there's a chance that happens and Trump is not in trouble, but it's going to be closer than he ever imagined. Is there any deal to be made with Ramaswamy? Because the other thing, and you and I were were texting yesterday, I had Ramaswamy at about five percent in New Hampshire. You've got him at about ten, and I told our audience today some of what you said about January six. But but if that's too close for comfort, and I know these deals are made. Does Trump reach out to Ramaswamy to try and convince him that he needs those 10% that are pledged to Ramaswamy in your poll? I think if it, I think if, if something like Christie, if Christie were to, were to get out, I think there will be a deal to be made, yes. 
But I think as long as Christie's in, a deal, there's no deal to be made. So, you know, obviously, Trump people do what they want to do. But if I were Trump, I would do whatever it takes, including attacking him to make Christie look relevant and keep him in this race. Why did Ramaswamy go from five to ten, Robert? Um, well, because one, well, he didn't really go from five to ten overnight. I mean, that was a great distance in my polls. Um, and I don't put a lot of stock in what most anybody says except for Emerson and Matt Towers. Um, but I think that he accomplished a couple of things in that debate. One, for the, and New, remember, New Hampshire is a place that one, we, always have a huge response rate. People like to take polls. They are very, very politically engaged in New Hampshire. So that New Hampshire is like us. They're a little weird, and they're the kind of people who watch that debate. I guarantee the ratings in New Hampshire are higher than almost any other state in the country. So they watch the debate, and a lot of us felt so much frustration that nobody would say what he said. And the fact that he said it, and he said it unequivocally, that was when, if, if you were looking at uh, any of this social media scraping stuff, that is when this stuff spiked. And it, it, it just, that was the biggest spike in the entire night, is when he said that. But when he called out Haley for the corruption, it's like, yes, there are people who saw it as negative, but people who hate the establishment saw him as a leader when he did that. Saw him as somebody not afraid to walk up the establishment and call it like it is and calling it like it is is kind of a new hampshire thing i don't know how many new englanders you've dealt with but they don't they don't pull a lot of punches they're not like us you know you walk in somewhere with a big old uh zit on your nose they're gonna say what's with the zit on your nose i mean that, that you know they don't, they're not polite they just tell you what it is and so they liked it they lack the Southern hospitality. <laughs> Last question, Robert. Robert Haley, senior strategist at Trafalgar, and I think the preeminent pollster in all of America, and I mean this sincerely. We're fortunate to have him on this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. But, Robert, can Haley take a chance of coming to South Carolina, a state she was recently elected governor of, and get beat by 25 or 30 points? I don't think she can, not only can she take the chance, I think she's going to. Um, I, I just. But where do you I go from there, be, Robert? I mean, I mean, if you get beat in your home state by 25 or 30 points, what, what other sort of political career is left out there? Well, you see, I don't ever think she plans on running again in South Carolina. I think. We, South Carolina is the stepping stone that she's done with. Her career is going to be in national politics or national lobbying or, or whatever. Or, and so the most important thing, I mean, like, look at, let's think at 2028, for example. Ron DeSantis will have just been tying up his governorship in 2028. He will have finished right at the end of 2026, all the way through the end. And so he could begin a campaign for president in 2027 and never step off the stage. So if Nikki didn't do this, then 
you're looking at 2028 with the lady who left being governor in 2018. Actually, 2017. That's a long time ago. So this is what keeps her relevant. This is what keeps her on the tip of people's tongue. This is what keeps her out there. I mean, for whatever they're worth, these, these debates have been beneficial to her. And if half what Rami Swami says about how she's making all this money, if half of what he said is true, running for president does not make her do less of that. Interesting. Um, hadn't thought of it that way, but that's why we want you to be our resident expert on these finely tuned political matters. I got to ask you this. I mean, the election's not today. We're 11 months out from a general election. Um, how do you see Trump in this moment in the in the swing states? I'm talking about Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia. You've argued that Georgia's not going to be a swing state. I mean, I think you've said that you believe Georgia has corrected some of the ills that caused what happened. Um, I don't put words in your mouth, but you've led me to believe that you're more comfortable with Georgia than you are the other swing states. I still, I still think it is a swing state because if the election were exactly the way it should be, if every voter were an engaged person who intended to vote in the election and made the effort, Georgia would not be a swing state. But until they remedy the problem with ballot harvesting, the problem in the law that says a guy can harvest, you know, cast 50 ballots, 49 harvested. He's guilty of 49 counts of ballot harvesting. He can be prosecuted for it. But all 49 of those ballots that were harvested still count. Until they fix that in the law, it's still going to be a little swingy. But it's not the swingiest of them. So how, do you, so how do you see Trump in the swing states against Biden? I do not think he is doing as well as some of these polls that are out there. But I don't think – but, you see, if you look at Matt Towery and I and, and my polls, none of us show the, the massive lead some other show. We're usually four or five points less than what they're showing because I think that what's going on is they're trying to intimidate and scare Biden donors to getting Biden out of the way. And they're also trying to set the expectation bar so it can look like Trump has started to fade. And you'll see the first evidence of this when, let's say, the media averages that Trump's going to win Iowa by 30. And uh, I'm trying to know what I had. I think I had like 28 or 29, maybe whatever it is. And and he does, you know, he, you know, he wins by 29. And then they're like, well, Trump won, but he underperformed. And and then each each preceding election, that Trump's winning, but certainly not by the margins that were predicted. And there's certainly tr- trouble in Trump world. And I think they're setting him up. I think it's a rope-a-dope. And I think they need to work like that they're behind. And they need to quit buying into these polls that show exorbitant leads because this is a dogfight. Anybody who thinks Trump's up by 15 points in Michigan has got problems. That is a very difficult place. 
and we know, and there's lots of shenanigans that happen there. So I think I think he has an excellent chance of winning, but I do not think some of the margins we've seen are, I think they're a little raised, but I think they're trying to raise the expectation bar so they can continue to say he falls behind it. I mean, imagine if they predicted a year out that he was going to win all these swing states. And then as we get closer, they said, well, uh, the Democrats continue to close that massive gap that started a year ago, and and now it's you know now it's getting tighter and tighter. Uh, Trump just can't hold on to that strength, and I, I think that's what they're setting up for. Well, if anybody can figure out the rope a dope, it is the master of the rope a dope, <laughs> and that is and that is Robert Kaley. I've seen him in action in the first person. Robert, thank you for. I have, I have wrote my share of dopes. So I can tell you. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, I, I know that. I know that firsthand. Absolutely. Thank you, my man. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the um, inside baseball narrative. We really, really, really appreciate it. We didn't get the baseball camp, but okay. Okay. Good, good deal. Good deal. <laughs> thank you, Robert. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, Robert Cahaley, senior strategist, Trafalgar. I, I, I get I get interested in Rev's reactions. Rev's like, mm, okay, you didn't oh, think yeah. of that. Didn't yeah. think of that. Yeah. Um, Two things related to the polling there at the end. He was talking about, you know, playing chess strategy. Very interesting. Hang on to that. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. What are you smiling about, Josh? No comment. Okay. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm waiting to hear what you're going to say. I'm now. not saying anything. Yeah. I'm the great Paul McCartney. Exactly. Yeah. That's what you should say. That's exactly right. I mean, he's, he's a Beatle. Yep. Um, great at what? Well, I mean, he's a great songwriter, great artist, musician. great performer, yeah. great musician. One of the best in history. Um, iconic. Um, I mean, I don't have to like somebody to give credit. And it's not that I don't dislike McCartney. I mean, that was a very cute song. <laughs> there you go. I, mean, I was waiting for it. What? What? A cute song. <laughs> So, but it makes me think of pink bows and ribbons and, you know. Yeah. We know what kind of songs you've you You've admitted to me, Rev, that the, the beauty of McCartney and Lennon was one was the salt and the caramel. And I'm more of a salt guy. Yep. You know that. Yep. I mean, I'm, more, yep. I'm more, you know, give me Lennon over McCartney. I certainly understand the significance of McCartney in modern music. And the Beatles is probably the most talented band ever. I mean, we'll argue about the Stones being the greatest ever. Um, and I did see a meme on Facebook or Twitter yesterday. Willie Nelson um, said that he's concerned that some of this younger generation aren't going to leave much of a world left behind for he and Keith Richards. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, right. So anyway, um, I mean, I, I'd certainly accept what, what the Beatles did and how important McCartney is, but, but he's a caramel kind of guy sure and um I mean, there's anything no, wrong with that but i mean not, not at all not if you like pink ribbons and pink bows <laughs> pink and ribbons yeah pink bows and well i'm talking about christmas yeah right? exactly bows and ribbons and fits. and decorations and, and, and that by the I way bet his house i bet that castle he lives in <laughs> is immaculately and cutely decorated he has right? this that song wonderful christmas time is i think usually in the top 10 of all christmas songs played over the course well, of I mean, the christmas he's, season he's like bruce he needs the money yeah, right. right, right. Or they need that yeah. couple of million bucks to come along in at Christmas oh, yeah. for singing a Christmas song. Yep. Not writing one, just singing yep. one. Oh, yeah, Paul, here's your $2 million Christmas bonus that you can count on every single year. Forget the fact that you're already a billionaire. Um, right, just pile it on. Yeah. Throw it on the pile. Just throw it on the pile with the rest of it. No, I mean, from what I've gathered and what I've read and what I've understood, he's a good and decent dude. I mean, he seems to be very grounded 
and accepting his blessings. Seems to be. That's kind of an interesting accepting your blessings. I mean, some people are very humble and accepting his blessings. You know, look, look, the good Lord gave me a talent. I didn't abuse that talent. I mean, I took that talent and went to work and I bumped into a guy that had a similar talent. And out of that came musical genius. And I know I've been very unbelievably fortunate and blessed. And I'm not that much different than the next guy other than my ability to write, you know, unbelievable music. I mean, I, what, I, what I've kind of appreciated, and I, I've never met him. I've seen him in concert a couple of times. Never met him. Wish wish I had. Um, but what I appreciate is the stories that you hear that people have talked to him and described that he is, you know, obviously understands people's affection for him and understands what he, him and his songwriting and his history with John Lennon, with the Beatles, and solo, as a solo artist, have meant to people's lives. And so, when you know, it's 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 got to be awkward in a way when somebody comes up to you and, and just, here's what you mean to me. You know, never met you before, but trying to express what they mean. And, and he appreciates the fact and respects the fact that that's the way they feel about him. And is kind of humble, as humble as he very can be. Humble. In, I mean, in he always way. appears to be very respectful of those who put him in high or hold him in high regard. It's almost like, hey, you folks hold me in high regard, but I'm not taking that bait. I'm not placing right. myself right. In, the, in that high regard. The most interesting thing to me of McCartney, the one thing that I am very curious about, every time he talks about Lennon, I mean, I find that to be unbelievably interesting. Because um, I don't think he talked about Lennon for, for a, long a long time. time. I mean, they, they, well, I mean, I, I think they, he wonders. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm trying to psychoanalyze from afar here. I think Lennon wondered, excuse me, I think McCartney wondered if they adequately buried the hatchet. I, I do. I think he wonders, okay, John and I made musical magic. Um, he was the salt of the caramel. I was the caramel and the salt. Um, we had some hard times because I've heard him say more than on one occasion when, when someone will say, well, I mean, there's always been a, a, a debate about who broke up the Beatles and McCartney says every time, no debate. I mean, there's no debate to that. John broke up the Beatles. I mean, we can argue about why and when and where and what should have been and what, you know, did we honor I mean, that? That's a legitimate. There is no debate about who broke up the Beatles. John Lennon broke up the Beatles because he just didn't want to be in the band any longer. Now that's where you go, well, it was Yoko's fault. It was the manager's fault. It was, well, I mean, that's, that's rock bands break up. I mean, they always do. Most rock bands aren't the Beatles. So you don't really care if they break up and get back together or not. But I think he and Lennon, from what I've read, you would know more than I, they made multiple attempts to come to amends. I mean, they, they, they realized how important and significant they were in one another's lives. And then Lennon tragically gets killed and I, and I think McCartney struggles with, did we ever fully repair that very important friendship? Because there's no way. I mean, I think you could have an uncomplicated relationship with, with Paul McCartney. I don't think you could with Lennon. I think Lennon's one of those dudes, everything's going to be complicated. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to be contradictory. Everything's going to be, uh, Lennon would be a Trump voter just to be that. You know, <laughs> no rock voters vote for Trump. No rock stars support Donald Trump. I do. Why? I just do. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I do. He's going to do what yeah. he does, and he's going to walk to the beat of his own drum. But, but so you would speak. agree to that. I mean, if, yeah. if Paul McCartney's your friend, you got kind of a regular dude. I mean, he's got a billion bucks, lives in a castle, but he's still kind of a regular dude. And occasionally you'll see a picture where he's on public transportation by himself. Yeah. No entourage. Just minding his own no business. People, just... Well, a lot of young people don't know who he is. Yeah. I mean, they, they've true. heard of the Beatles, but they're like, okay, oh, God, you know, funky hair. Um, <laughs> I hear he played in a rock band one of these one of those days. Now, you and I would obviously... 
but but we could in 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 to to the same point. You and I could ride a a subway with one of the hottest artists in today's world, and I wouldn't have a clue who it was. That's I mean, I, I would not have any idea whatsoever who a hot. I mean, I, I've seen Taylor Swift to know. Uh, well, I've, I've spent a small fortune on Taylor Swift tickets when my daughter <laughs> was younger and smaller. Um, that's why I'll have to work six years longer because Taylor Swift came to town, and my daughter and her three friends wanted to go. And I mean, we we you know, speaking of pink bows. We, Taylor Swift. See, I, I, I could say that I've never spent any money on Taylor Swift concert tickets or, well, I mean, or music. I can't say it. You can also say you don't have a teenage daughter. That's true. Well, and that's I did the, when Taylor Swift hit the scene. Yep. And when she says, you ready? I mean, on, on most times it's daddy. But on those rare times when it's daddy, you know what's coming. Yep. Swap it. <laughs> Swap it and hope it clears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I uh, don't know if you've – have you ever heard of carpool karaoke? I have. Oh, yeah. Okay, that that James – I think his name is Corbin. James Corden. Corden. If you uh, get a chance, watch the Paul McCartney episode. It's great. It is great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it's – what he means to – music is is really evident. Jeff, Rev failed for the setup. I didn't. See, I know something else is coming. I mean, I I know Rev – You've got him now. I mean, you're talking about McCartney. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, so you no, got him it, disarmed, it, but I am loaded for bear. So, go. I was on hold listening, so you know that was that was why I mentioned that. But it is a great uh, great thing to watch. Fair enough. Um, I wanted to ask you. Um, so, Jack Smith. Um, the, the argument. Uh, I wanted to talk about this and get your opinion. Um, Jack Smith has leapfrogged a court to go to the United States Supreme Court to rule on presidential immunity. You're, you're up on this development? About as much as I can be, yeah. I mean, I've read some different reports and different opinions, but fundamentally, yeah, that, that's what he's doing. He's not waiting okay. on the appellate court. He wants the Supreme right. Court to give him a ruling because he thinks they'll do it quicker. Right. And now, now the, a court did rule that he doesn't have presidential immunity. There's one president at a time. The immunity is with the office, not the person. And even when you were in the office, you have immunity against prosecution then. But when you leave office, you can be uh, prosecuted. Correct. That's the Washington and, court. Right. And, and that's kind of how it's been viewed from Nixon on. I think that's consistent right. with the law. I mean, I think you're right. I think the Nixon case, not wanting to hand over the tapes, kind of gives a limit, some some standard of limitation to what the president has in relation to immunity. Right. And that is what uh, Nixon, the fear of prosecution, mm-hmm. is what the Republicans went to Nixon and said, you're going to be impeached. You're going to be tried. If you resign you'll get a pardon from Ford. If you if you actually go back and look, that's kind of the mechanism or the tool they use to agree. About about forty members of Congress went over to the White House and pled with Nixon to resign and save the right. country from having to go through the ordeal of of, you know, criminally charging a president and then indicting and finding and, and maybe convicting. Well, the indicting or impeaching a president and then after that impeachment would have came. Yeah, but impeachment is old school to Trump. I mean, Trump's been that. I mean, he's twice impeached. Right. 
Right, but but they're making the argument. So Trump's lawyers are making the argument that he has immunity. I don't think he does. You, you, you don't think he does. I don't because I, here's the here's the scenario. Let's say that that Supreme Court would rule in Donald Trump's favor and say that he does have immunity. What's to stop Joe Biden from just saying, I'm not leaving the White House? Believe it or not, I agree with you. So you see that the Supreme Court can only rule one way. Well, I mean, they they can do what they choose to do, but I think they will rule on, and I think they'll use the Nixon case as the precedent that established a, a reasonable limit to the immunity a president enjoys. While he's in office. While he's in office, correct. Yeah, and and not for acts he did in office. But but, but, but see, Jeff, and, and I guess the, 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 the debate would evolve there from, I mean, you and I agree. I mean, I think the courts will rule in favor of Jack Smith. Where, where you and I would probably disagree is the logic of yesterday says that very much prohibits Trump from likely winning a nomination and eventual pregnancy. I think the logic of today says it has very little bearing on what the American public are willing to stomach, tolerate, put up with from a, from a sitting, a former president. Yeah. Again, whether or not he's your nominee, whether or not, uh, well, he's going he, to be uh, the nominee, you know that. Yeah. Uh, whether or not, uh, he, uh, uh, wins the Oval Office and, you know, then is in jail. No man is above the law. No former president is above the law. The only person who gets to stay is the president of the United States while he's in office, but it's a stay. It's not immunity. Do you believe that Trump's strategy is to delay a potential yes. conviction until he gets selected and then pardon himself? Absolutely. Yes, there is no doubt. That, I mean, that, that would be the smartest yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And, and and do you believe a president has the power to pardon himself? Yes, we, I do. We, we don't know that. We, well, I mean, we, we don't. don't you're right. You're right. We don't know that. Yeah. I think he does. Yeah, I mean, he has the, the the power to pardon anybody on a federal crime. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. But he and they both do have done that. I think Georgia. you would agree they both done that. Republicans and Democrats historically have um, pardoned people. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like you don't have to look far. I mean, there's a bunch of unsavory characters that have gotten pardons for money. You know, Democrat uh, and Republican. Yeah. There's pretty bipartisan Absolutely. support of that. Right. So just to so you're not going to be shocked when the Supreme Court rules for Jack Smith. And that every uh, presidential immunity only exists while you're president. No, and I understand Smith doing it because he realizes that if Trump's given the opportunity, he has a chance to win the presidency and then pardon himself, and he wants to get this conviction on the record before Trump's elected president. Yeah. I mean, I think Smith's doing what he should do, but I think the Trump team are doing exactly what they should do. I mean, it's kind of lawfare at this point. Well, I, I love that term lawfare. It's a new one. Uh, I, I get it, but, uh, you know. Well, it's playing um, the game with the legal system that the legal system allows you to play. Yeah, and again, both sides partake in this. Are you for Smith? I'd be interested in this. Are you for or against Smith not waiting on the appellate court to make a decision as we normally do? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's not unprecedented either. It's not, but it's uncommon. 
Yeah, well, you know, like I think Jack Smith laid out, there's a pretty compelling case to expedite. Um, you know, and 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 there's there's other reasons that cases get expedited uh, outside of elections. I would be so interested in your opinion here. Then I got to take a break, but I, I want to get your take on this. So let's say hypothetically, and we're playing hypotheticals here. Let's say Trump wins in November and figures out a way to delay the conviction but gets convicted post-election. Should Trump try to pardon himself? No. Okay. No, he, he, he shouldn't. Uh, again, would you be okay with Joe Biden pardoning Hunter right now? Mm, no, but, I mean, Hunter's not the president. No, but, I mean, like, here's somebody. But we're talking about immunity and-, and pardoning others and whatnot. I'll be honest with you. I would understand Joe Biden pardoning his son. I wouldn't be supportive of it, but it doesn't matter what I think. I mean, I'm not a Democrat voter. He knows that. It's not me he's trying to make happy. You know, his base would probably say, well, I mean, it's been a witch hunt. Same thing the Republicans say about Trump. I mean, it's been unfair. It's been one-sided. It's been a witch hunt. It's been, you know, um, an an action of politics. And um, here's the interesting question, Jeff, that I'd be most curious about. Not, Not a question to you. What do you believe the response would be, Rev. Josh Jeff? If Trump said on the front end that if given the opportunity, I'm going to pardon myself of this nonsensical conviction, wonder what the people in America would think if he said it on the front end. Ken, he said he wants to be a dictator on day one. Well, I mean, day one. He said for one day. I'm cool with that. Well, okay. one day. Yeah, but do you trust him? Sure, I do. I and that, and you know that. No, but I, mean, I, I, I trust him as much as no. I do anybody that else. That was a little tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> well, that I mean, answer, too. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean Jeff knows that. I mean, Jeff knows Every president wants to be a dictator. Yeah. <laughs> Every president you, wants to be a When I was lieutenant governor, you know what? I wanted more power. You, you've absolutely been on the record saying you wouldn't let your daughter marry him. You wouldn't go into business with him. You don't trust him. But I want him desperately he's, to be my president. He's a good president. Uh, good, good, whatever. You don't trust him. I desperately so want him, him to be my president. Power. I don't trust the people he's running against, Jeff. I mean, the one thing that the one thing I've said, and we got to take a break. I'm sorry, but the one thing I've been very consistent, I'm not defending everything Trump's ever done. I think he's making a mockery of the mockery, and people have an appetite for that today. It's obvious people have an appetite. I mean, there there was a day you could say he has no chance to win. You can't say that anymore. You can't be honest with yourself and say Trump has very little chance to win. He has a very good chance to get reelected again in 2024. And that's because I believe the logic of yesterday that some people still faithfully believe in just does not apply. Take a break. Back in a few. Ah, ha, ha. Ha, ha. Good, good one. Good one. Six, six, good one, Josh. <laughs> Under the weather, no shot. Robert Cahaley getting Josh. Um, <laughs> 843-661-0937 is our number. I guess Jeff and I are buying into the Christmas spirit. I mean, we, we were a little more civil yeah, with one another, a little more respectful more civil. of one another. He said some good um, things about McCartney. Yeah, and he did. Really? Um, and Well, that, that disarmed you. Yeah, I know. I mean, Jeff, Jeff, I know. Jeff should run for office. The first thing you skillful. do, you find the people in the room that don't like you, and that's kind of an instinctive. I mean, when I, when I ran for office, I'd go in a room, and I'd go, okay, uh, these three, I think, are on my side. I don't think those two are. And I wouldn't neglect the three that were on my side, but I pay special attention to the two that uh, that were not. And disarming 
is a beautiful thing in politics. And I, I, understand, I, I do ask that question. I mean, the, the logic of yesterday and days gone by historically have applied. And I'm not saying they're, they're completely obsolete. But, Josh, if Trump were to say at a press conference today that Jack Smith is going to the Supreme Court to try and, you know, uh, accuse me of not having the immunity that I think I have, and nobody, I don't think Jeff would blame Trump for arguing I've got this immunity. I mean, that, that's, I mean, you're, you're trying to position yourself in the most advantageous place. And, and, I, and I hear people, well, it's not true. Well, I mean, let, let the judge and jury decide that. I mean, do, do we believe that every person that has ever committed a crime has been convicted and every innocent person has been let go? No. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the nature of judiciary is uncertain. It's inexact. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's squishy. You do the best you can. You got all these guardrails and, you know, you take advantage of that, of that playing field. So, I mean, if Trump is not asking or, or declaring that he has immunity, to me, he's not doing the best job he can of defending himself. I mean, you would expect that. And I would expect Jack Smith to say, I ain't waiting on this appellate court. I mean, I'm going to Supreme Court and get them to render a decision sooner than later. I think the courts rule with Smith. I think the Nixon case is a precedent, and they're big on on um on precedent, but but the courts have been very sympathetic to executive privileges. I mean, if you look back historically in recent, I'm talking about the last 25 or 30 years, when given an opportunity to interpret executive authority, they, they've been very sympathetic to those people like Trump. And, and I think it's, un, I mean, I, I don't think there's not a single president we've ever elected that have given the opportunity in the dark of night to say, I want to be a dictator would not have taken up on that, on that chance. Now, if you're not in office, you don't want to be a dictator, but if you are in office, uh, let's see, I want to be a limited president. I think a lot of my opinion, so much that I ran for the presidency and won. But now I've got to choose. Do I want to be a man with limited authority and ability, or do I want to be a dictator? Let me think about that about one half of one second. <laughs> Sign me up for dictatorship. Because ultimately the people have entrusted me the responsibility to run the government. I've kind of earned the right to be a dictator. I, I mean, now Trump's personality is different. But him saying publicly that he kind of sort of wants to be a dictator for a day or two. I mean, everybody in power wants more power. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules, rules everything. everything. So that's just the nature of people in power, people who desire to have to have power. Um, but it would be so interesting to watch the American people react via polling if Trump were to say, Hey, they may convict me, but they better do it before the election. Because if they don't, I'm pardoning myself on day one. I mean, half the country would go, hell yeah. I mean, that's Trump, the unconform, the nonconformist. I mean, that's why we like the guy. And the other half would go, oh, that makes me nervous. I mean, that really makes me nervous. Um, I, I just think the, the logic of yesterday, you, you better ball that up and throw it in the trash. Because if you can, and maybe Nikki Haley doesn't, I mean, maybe. Something about the Boeing board and the military industrial complex warps, warps the mind and makes you believe that, you know, we ain't going back to the future. I mean, this isn't a DeLorean. This is a new normal in American politics. And Trump is the, uh, the, the representation or manifestation of that new normal. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Rev. Good morning, Ken. Uh, 
as much as I want to talk about DeSantis on CNN and Sanudo endorses Nikki Haley and the 235-plus math where Georgia equals 16 electoral votes and Pennsylvania 19, can I, I need some help from you, my man. I cannot explain this. Otani, this contract where you get $700 million, but you defer $680 million until 2034. So are the Dodgers kind of like our country or whatever, where we're just deferring stuff until future dates, or are they just trying to market this thing and make residuals off the marketing? But anyway, I'll hang up and listen, my man. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. I read that in the contract. The overwhelming majority of his compensation is going to be deferred to the back end of the contract. And I don't understand that. I mean, how does a man live on $20 million? <laughs> right. I mean, how, how does he make that? I do know this, and I would suspect this to be true. Major League Baseball really wanted this guy on the East Coast. I mean, they really, from what, I, from what I've read, Major League Baseball kind of sort of meddled in the affairs of contract negotiations, and they, they kind of went to the Mets, the Yankees, the Red Sox, um, maybe the Cubs, some of the big market. The Braves wouldn't. I mean, I told you, Rev was talking about it. I said, they can't afford him. I mean, not with being a line item in Liberty Media's budget. They just can't. I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, that breaks the bank. But from what I've read and some of the sourced information, Major League Baseball basically reached out to all the, the big market East Coast teams and said, hey, you need to get this guy. We don't want this guy. I mean, we'd love to have him, but not at that price. We want him on the East Coast. We want him playing baseball when the majority of Americans are awake and watching baseball, not on the West Coast, when 75% of America are already in the bed, asleep, and read about the 475 home run, uh, foot home run he hit on Sports Center the next day. I mean, that's just, but anyway, um, money talks and bullcrap walks, mm -hmm. and the Dodgers cut a big check. But a lot of that is deferred uh, compensation, and I got no idea. I mean, I don't understand how those sophisticated contracts work. Um, I'm a little bit familiar with NIL, <laughs> but I'm nowhere near familiar with some of those highfalutin contract negotiations. First thing, between that, first thing that came to my mind was that, okay, potentially he's, uh, out of his or, or he's past his 10 years and he's on the, in, I guess the point where he's getting paid for his contract and he lives somewhere other than California and he's going to save what 30 or 40% yeah. taxes. Well, I mean, and, and some, I mean, I did read that his agent advised him to design a contract that allowed him to live in states that don't have an income tax. Now, now that's getting far above my pay grade. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about a seven hundred million dollar contract. So we're talking about. I mean, I doubt he knocked on the door of the local accounting agency and said, "Hey, you doing anything tomorrow? I might show up at this meeting I have with the Dodgers. See if you help me negotiate this contract." I mean, you got to believe there was a lot of estate planning and and tax advice given in in some of that negotiation. But but it it would have been good for Major League Baseball. I mean, he's an interesting guy. He's a pitcher. He's a hitter. He's not a natural-born American. Uh, I mean, that, that's just kind of an interesting personality, good for the game of baseball, and he's going to play for the Dodgers, and the Dodgers play when about 75% of America are already uh, in the bed. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, fellas. Question, doesn't Bobby Benia still get money? I think last year or this year is his final year of that um, – that, that whatever it is of the contract that he was to. It's like a million dollars a year. It's $1.2 million every year. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, some, you know, if I got the $500 million, I might want to just take it 
as it comes to, but that's not why I call. Could President Trump or a president from here on out, before he leaves office, say, I'm pardoning myself for any crime I may have committed because it was unintentional? I, I don't know. I mean, I can't answer that. That that would be – I told Rev during the break, Nick, I want to find somebody that can be our go-to guy on the Supreme Court because I'm a little out of my realm when I start, you know, thinking about what they've done and what they will do and, and what precedent is. When you talk about immunity and executive privileges, I mean, there there's a great legal debate to be had, but but I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I'm sure I don't know the answer to that. Isn't it in the Constitution that the president can pardon? Yeah, but but I think it's up for interpretation. Are there are there? It's a little bit like the First Amendment. I mean, we've kind of concluded you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You know, you can't have a tank in your garage uh, for the Second Amendment. And I would imagine that language of the Constitution could be legally debated. Understood. Well, that was just my thought. I just thought from here on out, every president ought to do that. Yeah, that that would give you good cover. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Appreciate yeah, it. Sign um, the letter and put it in the drawer. Yeah. So it's filed. That, that says, hey, I may do something stupid and illegal, but I'm, you know, on the front end pardoning myself for any stupidity or illegal activity I may eventually become um, somewhat involved in. Um, remember, talking about illegal activity and criminality, remember the name Sarah Biden. Just hold on to that. Put that in your pocket. Write down Sarah Biden. I don't think there's an H at the end of that. S-A-R-A-B-I-D-E-N. Stick it in your pocket. And then one of these days you'll say, I remember that Yahoo on that radio show said to remember this name. She wrote a lot of damn checks and put at the bottom of the checks loan repayments. Hmm. Hmm. Is she a banker or is she a lawyer? (laughs) I tell you, she was a lawyer turned banker. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Brian in Florence. Good morning, Brian. After Otani got that contract for $700 million, I did a little snooping, and uh, by pure coincidence, I I chose the Cincinnati Reds to see what their total salary was for a season. I found out that the Cincinnati Reds were still paying King Griffey Jr. last year $37.5 million. Talking about a deferment. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good deferment. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That's Appreciate all- that. Yeah, I mean that, that's um, I mean it, th- those contracts get real complicated, backloaded. Um, you got salary caps. You got you know, um, I, it's just I, I I don't profess to understand that world. I mean I, I don't. I mean it, it's that's above my pay grade. I do know that a lot of these guys, as part of the negotiation, have advisors. And, and from what I've gathered, the advisor says, hey, what do you see yourself living in 10 years? I mean, at your income, you need to live in a place that's very friendly to income. And it's normally Florida or Texas. I mean, we, you know, Tennessee. I mean, Nashville's become a place that high earners retire. And, and some of the um, – and when I say retire, Ken Griffey is retired, but he's still getting paid. Ken Griffey Jr. I knew – I didn't know what the number was, but I knew he had backloaded a lot of his contract. And, um, I mean, you walk at the guy, walk, you see him walk around and – you know, on a private jet, and you're like, wow, he must have lot, made a lot of money playing baseball. I said, well, he made some money playing baseball, but he got a lot of his money after he left uh, the game. Tom Brady has always been the most noted, or one of the most noted examples of that. Brady would always, the Patriots were wheeling and dealing 
and they needed salary space. I mean, that's what they'd call. They said, hey, we'd love to sign this guy, Randy Moss. I mean, we believe the Patriots could win another world championship if we had Randy Moss, but we don't have the money to pay what the market's going to demand. And Brady would say, what, what will the market demand? Um, $10 million. Okay, what can we do to my contract? And maybe I can go see a couple of other players. And Brady carried a lot of weight in the Patriot organization. And they would, uh, I hate to say this because it sounds ridiculous, shared sacrifice. You know, what was shares? Okay, okay. Instead of making $20 million, you're making $17 million. Instead of the other guy making $13 million, he's making $12 million. I mean, anyway, th- there would be, it was always the priority to win a championship and not necessarily get as much money as you can um, right now. The better question is what does it say about a nation when sports is that important? I mean, isn't that kind of a, uh, isn't that somewhat of a narrative, Josh? I mean, what does it say about a country that has about 65% people participate in picking nominees of parties? Well, it'd be less than that. It's less than 50. In some of the primaries, less than 50% of Americans vote on the leader of the free world, but we pay a baseball player $700 million for 10 years. What does that say about the, the cultured character of a nation? I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, it is what it is. That's the, some of the decisions collectively and cumulatively uh, we've made. Uh, bread and circuses. Okay. That's, Explain. That's kinda, basically, um, people are more concerned with being entertained than, um, than, than worrying about politics and worrying about how real-life, real-world decisions actually affect who, them. It's easier to be comfortable. Who has convinced us that that's best? I mean, I'm reading a lot right now <coughs> Excuse me, about the monopoly of media. I mean, I want, I want to talk a little bit about that probably after the first year. I'm reading a couple of books somebody said for me to read about monopolizing the media, how many um, entertainment and media companies there were 30 years ago, how many there are now. I mean, think about what Disney owns. I mean, if Disney is in the entertainment business, to Josh's point, why wouldn't Disney want you to prioritize being entertained? Well, uh, what, what have they done to brainwash the American people into believing that entertainment is that important. I mean, if you're in the entertainment business, and they are, I mean, they would be the stalwart of entertainment and also in America. Big time in the sports entertainment I mean, business too. Sports, entertainment, media, news. I mean, you know, they, they own. I mean, their tentacles are far-reaching. So, so, and Josh is right. We've decided that entertainment is that important. Did we decide that on our own, or did someone like Disney convince us that entertainment? should be that important because if you're in the entertainment business, guess what you don't want people doing? Reading serious books, writing serious essays, understanding about our founders. No, we need them in theaters and, and on Hulu Plus and on Disney Plus, and I mean, that's where the money is. What did Willie Sutton say when they asked him, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where they keep the money. So if Disney is an entertainment giant, why wouldn't Disney intentionally brainwash the American people into believing that entertainment should be more important than knowing about that crazy Jeffersonian Hamiltonian debate we had in our country's early existence? I just wanted to say I don't think that uh, the American people or just people in general were tricked into prioritizing entertainment over politics. I just think that's how they are. I think this it's is easier. How- yeah, yeah, and you know, like the average IQ is about 100, and this is not putting anyone down or anything, but people generally 
like to be led. You know, they, they like someone else to make the decision for them, generally. Conditioned to conform. By, by nature, I would say, okay. rather than by interference. See, this is such an interesting debate. I'm arguing it's not by nature. I mean, I'm arguing, I'm arguing that the, the collective sources, the collective um, power structure have taken advantage of our inclination to be comfortable. You said it right. I mean, our inclination to be comfortable and content has led to media and, and, and you know, um, academia. I mean, I could all, I could, we could argue about what the most important voices are on that side. But it's, it's a little bit like if, if, if governmental leaders, I mean, if I were in charge of government and somebody said, hey, we can, we can extract 30% of all the testosterone in American males today. You want to do it or not? I'd say, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Why? They'll be easier to condition that they'll be easier to take advantage of, that they'll be easier to lead around on a leash and convince them that being entertained is the way to go. Don't worry about being intelligently uh, informed. That, that's an interesting perception you have. And, and I agree with it to some degree. Um, and if you feel better, we'll argue about it tomorrow. Fair <laughs> enough? I mean, you've got some Sounds medicine, good. right? you got some medicine. I got some meds. And, and, and you know, Daddy Ken brought him some throat, throat lozenges today because <laughs> I knew he'd leave him in his car. Uh, anyway, enjoy your day. We'll, nice. t- we'll talk tomorrow.